This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Happy Friday to you. You made it another week, my my good people. This is such a great victory. I know. You didn't think you could do it, and you did. By golly, goodness. Good gigurgur. I don't know you okay I'm, there? I'm so excited. It sounded like some baby talk. I know. I've been uh, thinking about Stas. I'm, I'm going to talk to Stas <laughs> the first time I meet him. This is a great day. Uh, today we've got a great topic. We'll be covering um, everybody has an identity, a digital self on the interweb. All of these high-tech companies are making kind of this aggregate profile on you, and you may be surprised what you are to them. Product. You're a product for sure. And in fact, you're, you're, the, the commoditizing of your data is probably more valuable than you'll ever be right. to certain companies. Um, but the scary thing is you may be, I don't know, a 47-year-old male, but they think you are a 28-year-old female. Hmm. That that mistake, you know, happens a lot. <laughs> Does it? I mean, they could think like because I'm so young and hip. Uh, I'm so into all of the new stuff. Wrong. Um, love love the Beebs. Wrong. Love him. That uh, a lot of people think I'm a 28 year old male bodybuilder. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow, they're missed the boat on that one. Well, they got male correct. Yeah. Yeah. I'm two times that age, but because I, I look at a lot of young hip stuff, I, I read the, teen magazines. The bodybuilder part, right? And well, the, well, the bodybuilder <laughs> though, I look at a lot of bodybuilding sites. Oh, do you? Yeah. Nice. Big on protein. Huh? Big. I do a lot of searches for protein. Nice. Well, you've helped to rebuild bodies when you were an EMT. No, it's true. Totally. I've held a I've held pressure and a little traction on a broken leg and stuff. I've, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff with bodies. So don't don't get me wrong. I'm really a well, 47-year-old male, not a bodybuilder. With the whole, you know, we are, the, the, the book here is called We Are Data. Yeah. Right? And I'm a data. We talked about it with- Just became a data. With Verizon. They're purchasing Yahoo. Yeah. Right? They're not doing that because they want a search engine. No, because they're not doing right? it because Yahoo's one of the greatest uh, email accounts you could ever own. They don't jump in there and go, You're wrong. wow, the finance page is awesome. We need to own this. Yeah. They want it because Yahoo's sitting on a pile of data yeah. about all of us who have ever gone to Yahoo and used their Yahoo. services in any way. Yeah. They want that. See, it's good. They don't that, that's want, what they're after. And they don't necessarily want to sell you a phone as much no. as they want to get the information that you give them about the, when you use a phone. But so. here, and then we, the, back to our favorite word on the show, algorithm. We love that word. Today's show is brought to you by the word algorithm. It's a great word. Uh, and the problem with it is a lot of the algorithms are, they, they then keep feeding you what you like, right, to, per, mm. to create more purchases, more sales. But in the end, it's not necessarily who you think you are. But the government, NSA, for example, they're going to determine if you're an American or not based on an algorithm. Right. And then your rights are determined by that algorithm. So whether they spy on you or not may not have anything to do with you actually being a citizen because they're not cross-checking citizen databases. They're just finding out, do you spend a lot of time on Al Jazeera? Are you, <laughs> do you do a lot of work on RT, Russian television? Hmm. 
Because if you do, and if you spend a lot, do certain searches and you're, you're participating in certain things, then all of a sudden you may lose certain rights and NSA now sees you as a non-American. So we need to start – Flashbang through the window, SWAT yeah. team through uh-huh. the front door. Okay, great. I, I spent a lot of time on RT Rotten Tomatoes. That's different. Okay. Different website. So anyway, that's what we'll be getting into, algorithms and the making of our digital selves. A uh, fascinating discussion coming up. Plus, of course, um, a lot of uh, news. Of the, uh, did they have the ball game, the baseball game? They had it last night. I have the score for you. Oh, no, I heard. Oh, that's right. I heard. It, that was, it was kind of a blowout. But of course, of course, because... One team was being shot at. The other team wasn't, so they had more time to practice. There you go. Sure. So let's get to the headlines with Terry South, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? So the baseball game happened one day after a House Majority Whip. Steve Scalise was shot during the GOP practice in Alexandria, Virginia. Democrats won the game 11-2, but House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, during a joint interview with House Speaker Paul Ryan, told CNN that they were all on Team Scalise. That's cool. And the Democrats gave the trophy to him. It'll be in his office Whenever he so the returns. Democrats schooled the Republicans in baseball, and yep. then they gave him the trophy for Scalise's office. Right. That's cool. Yeah. It's nice. Players on both sides wear Louisiana State University hats as a nod to Scalise. That's from uh, oh, yeah, that's his right. home district. Uh, he remains in critical condition, and the hospital reports that he had to have another surgery related oh. to his internal injuries and broken bone in his leg, and will stay in the hospital for some time. In other news, U.S. intelligence suspects Russian assassins to be behind 14 deaths on British soil. The killings allegedly include those of a Russian whistleblower who was suspected to have been poisoned, an exiled oligarch who uh, wouldn't uh, play ball with Putin. Cause Come Putin, on! Putin kind of set up some rules so certain people got yeah. certain industries, like the railroad went to this guy, gas went to this yeah. guy. But they said, I made you a billionaire. You need to give, and when I need, you know, like a, a, then, something built for yeah. the Olympics or whatever. You build it. You you just do it. And this guy decided not to play ball. Oh, and boy. He, he left the country. And uh, the story is that he got radiation poisoning. I, you mean, know, just, I mean, that just happens. Just what you, what you do in London. Accidents happen. And he was able to, he, he died there. So oh, there's wow. been all these different uh, incidences. They're thinking they're all assassinations. Despite the string of premature death, British officials have allegedly avoided Thorough investigations for fear of stoking tensions with Russia. They mm. just kind of let it go. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to upset Russia right now. Don't take them off. The U.S. Navy, with help from the from the Japan Maritime Self Defense Force and Japanese Coast Guard, spent 50 hours searching 5,500 miles of ocean for Petty Officer Peter Mims, who was believed to have fallen overboard from the USS Shiloh June 8th. So imagine everyone's surprise when they found Mims on board the Shiloh. Huh. Yeah, story. Uh, this what is in the, uh, the Navy Times that Mims was found hiding in an engine room. It's unclear how he survived a week in there with fellow crew members searching the uh, vessel for him. The Navy's investigating how and why Mims went missing for seven days. He's being transferred to the USS Ronald Reagan for, quote, medical evaluation. <clears throat> wow. Hmm. Mims the word. I, I put quote in there, but <laughs> still. And finally, uh, this next story may be new information for some people. Yeah, what, what, what? A new study by the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy found that 7% of American adults or approximately 16.4 million people think chocolate milk comes out of the cow like that. Oh, sure. Comes from chocolate cows. Yeah, just eating cocoa beans. The most surprising thing about this figure may actually be that it isn't higher, the Washington Post boldly estimates. Overall, the survey found that 48% of U.S. adults aren't quite sure where chocolate milk comes from. 
They won't say chocolate cows, but they're like... 48% are like, I don't know where that chocolate milk comes from. Yeah, they're kind of concerned about that. You had one of those chocolate burgers? They're good. The Post adds that Americans are basically agriculturally illiterate, citing a Department of Agriculture study from the early 90s that found that nearly one in five adults didn't know that hamburgers are made from beef. To be fair... To be fair, Americans aren't typically taught in any formal sense where their food comes from. A study of fourth, fifth, and sixth graders in one California school found that more than half of them didn't know pickles were cucumbers or that onions and lettuce were plants. Wow. Four in ten didn't know that hamburgers came from cows. Three in ten didn't know that cheese is made from milk. Today, many Americans only experience food as an industrial product that doesn't look much like the original animal or plant. The USDA says orange juice is the most popular fruit in America, (laughs) and processed potatoes in the form of French fries and chips rank among the top vegetables. Top vegetable, for sure. Tomatoes. So we're we're being healthy. Let's be real. Um, Honestly... I'm sure that most of the beef we're eating isn't coming well, from a cow. We don't, yeah. Right? So what are you going to do? Do you really expect us to be accurate there? Careful. We talk pink, we've talked about pink meat. In fact, we'll play it during the break. One of yeah. our sponsors is a meat packing company. Casa Carne. Casa Carne, which in Spanish translates to almost meat. ABC has that lawsuit with the, the you know, dairy or what the beef producers in what, South Dakota, North Dakota, where they called it pink slime. and Yeah. So uh, that's right. That, that whole set, that the whole Oprah thing. Oprah started that fight. Yeah. yeah. Though it was found to be, you know, edible and healthy. Sure. By the USDA. Sure. It's like a hot dog. Yeah. Oprah fighting. That's interesting. Who would who would win in a fight between Oprah and a chocolate cow? Oh, for sure, Oprah. Yeah. Chocolate cow because that's where chocolate milk comes from. Uh, speaking of chocolate cows, um, is it NBC yeah. hires Megyn Kelly? They did. Not a chocolate cow. <laughs> no. And um, all, of, all of the sudden, it's getting crazy because Megyn Kelly, one of her first guests, happens to be one of the most polarizing lightning rods of radio. So her first episode of her show, she talks to Vlad Putin. Yeah. And well, many, great get. Many people feel that she didn't actually hold him accountable for certain things that he said, like, you know, called him like, wait, no, you can't say that. Yeah. This isn't true. This well, is yeah. it. But he just kind of – He just ran over her. Ran over her. She right. didn't really put up much of a speed bump of uh, resistance. There. But it is Vlad and so he is In this show, XKGB. she's, she's going to talk with Alex Jones yeah. who runs a website called InfoWars. He, uh, he has talked about how 9-11 was a government conspiracy and at times has said that Sandy Hook uh, massacre of all the – what were they, first, second oh, graders? Yeah. That that was fake. He's now said that, ah, I think now now he's trying to come, you know, bring it back and say that not I didn't mean fake, fake, but I, you know, people died, but I think it's it's been made into more than what it was. Okay. Right? So, I mean, he said these, he's yeah. trying to, it's kind of wishy-washy now. He's like, oh, it was just a scenario that I gave. Yeah. He's talked about it, them bussing in actors to cry so it looked good for the cameras. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. Um, but on Thursday night, Alex Jones leaked audio of what he said was his private pre-interview with Megyn Kelly. Instead of the Hollywood Reporter, it sounds like Kelly says to Jones, "This is not going to be contentious sort of gotcha exchange." Like she was going to make it more of a, a bio piece. Yeah. Like, who is this guy? Not necessarily you're you're a horrible person. So yeah, she wasn't going to take him on. 
she was going to make it like a biopsy. And now Kelly Kelly is getting – Speaking of going to the doctor. Is uh, getting uh, – Complaints against her. There's been ah. a uh, sponsor or two that has stepped away from her show just for the week yeah. to see how this interview goes before they make any sort of permanent decision. NBC story about Jones is still set to air. Uh, Kelly's show on Saturday on Sunday, page six, hears that Kelly, that's out of the New York Post, I believe, yeah. they claim that Kelly has completely overhauled the segment, inviting Sandy Hook families on the program and editing her interview with Jones to be tougher on him. Of course, this is not unusual to be tinkering and rewriting and editing up until airtime, except uh, Alex Jones published these secret recordings he made of the pre-interview, what they call and kind of set things up, where they made all these promises. And now it looks like they're switching it because of pressure, and they're going to try to go against what the initial premise of what they were trying to do. Maybe you just ought to cancel this one and just start over. It seems a little complicated. You may want to move on. But I think that they, they feel that there's like a newsworthiness to it because the president likes this guy. Yeah. And so they're trying to explain who oh, our this president. Guy, yes. Oh, I was thinking Russian president. No, 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 no. We're, oh, no, our president. President likes, Trump has been on his show. Yeah, he likes this said guy. He's a great guy mm-hmm. on the show. There's video you can see of this. Mm-hmm. But because of that association, they're like, OK, we understand he's very controversial. Yeah. And the, the, the Sandy Hook families have actually filed a lawsuit. And they sent a letter to NBC saying this decision may be driven by simple urge to gain an edge in a well-publicized rating war, but has devastated human, devastating human consequences as well. Airing Miss Kelly's interview implicitly endorses the notion that Mr. Jones' lie, his lies are actually claims that are worthy of serious debate. Good and point. It goes on from there, and they're saying NBC and NBC alone <sighs> has the power to prevent this from happening. It's been a rough start for her, Megyn Kelly, because she was she was killing it on Fox. Right. She was doing really well, came over to NBC, and kind of – she might be 0 for 2 here. The New York Times had an interview. Was it New York Times? They're saying just the idea that – it was in The Hollywood Reporter saying that she brings baggage from Fox and she's trying to kind of shed the baggage Uh. by having these types of in-depth, hard-hitting interviews, except it's going the wrong way for Well, yeah. If it's a biographical piece on a polarizing lightning rod. And she she had an interview with the New York Times and she said, uh, as journalists, we don't get to interview only good guys, but we still have to thread that needle of interviewing the person that's controversial, but not, you know, painting them as something that they're not. Hmm. Don't put them in a good light if they don't deserve it. Boy. But I think it's too difficult. They should just back away. Walk away. Walk away. Hey, um, coming up next, we're going to be talking about data. We Are Data is the name of the book, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves. Interesting stuff, folks. Uh, remember, we've talked about a lot on the show. They're, they're gathering data on you, but that does that matter in the end? Uh, it matters. Oh, does it matter, folks, because it might determine how the government sees you, how others see you. In the future, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. (music) 
A digital profile of you is constructed and constantly updated with every click you make online. Algorithms watch every search, every connection, every click. What does your digital profile look like? Have you ever wondered? Well, our next guest, John Cheney Lippold, author of We Are Data, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves, is with us today to answer some questions that we may have about our online profile. John, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. This is such a fascinating read because I had no idea that my foreignness, in quotes, is in question. I had no idea that even my citizenship could be questioned simply by my algorithm online. Yeah, it's. I think one of the most striking things is to think of everything we do doesn't just have effect on maybe what we want to live and like how we want to live our lives, but actually there's some algorithmic agent that's watching us and trying to make an assessment. What you're referencing is the national... Uh, the NSA's algorithm to determine if a person is a U.S. citizen or not. That's because, obviously, you can't figure out if or if not an individual using a computer is a citizen because mm. we don't surf with the passport, we don't surf with the birth certificate. So instead, they use data such as who you talk to, where your IP address is coming from, what language you speak, and even if you encrypt your communications or not, to then algorithmically determine if you are 51% foreign or 51% citizen, and then if you're 51% foreign, they can surveil you. Holy cow. I mean, I guess this makes sense because they can't come, uh, you know, they can't come look for ID every single yeah. second you're online. So so, th- so, what you're saying is that every human, I, but I, I guess it's connected to my computer, right? So mm-hmm. if two or three of my family members are using the computer, wouldn't that create a really weird algorithm or a really weird profile? It's exactly that. Um, there are some companies that try to differentiate between viewer patterns, uh, such as like maybe a child of yours uses it at six o'clock, and maybe you use it at four o'clock in the mm. afternoon um, to try to determine that. And sometimes maybe you visit, you know, like web pages about news, and your kid visits web pages about kind of kid stuff. But at the end of the day, you're totally right that there's no real clear way to differentiate what we think of as individuality online, because instead it's just profiles and it's algorithmically determined so that we never really know who we are or how we're being, I guess, given resources or given the ability to be a citizen. Wow. But you, but you could lose your rights in a way. You could be spied on. You could be surveyed, surveilled. You could be, have a lot of things done to you. Yeah. The NSA also has an algorithm to determine who is a terrorist or not. Um, And this has actually led to a lot of really horrible things, such as a lot of Yemeni wedding parties have been killed because in Yemen and in Pakistan as well, a lot of people go like 25 miles outside of the city center and congregate with their family and friends. And from any person looking at a data perspective, it just looks like 25 different cell phones in the middle of nowhere. Oh, wow. they often think that that's a, a, a terrorist meeting, so they, they bomb it with a drone. And that's why, yeah, a lot of Yemeni wedding parties are killed by um, U.S. drones. Unbelievable. So this, okay, and this, we, we've now actually used the word algorithm on this show a lot, but we've actually used it in the last month or two a lot more. We, we are learning more and more about these algorithms, but, but maybe help us understand. How are algorithms used? How do they track? How do they work? That's a very good kind of armor. Um, the idea of an algorithm at the base is just a well-defined set of instructions to calculate a function. So people have said that algorithms are recipes, they're how to do a dance, they're just things that you know when you kind of follow. And the idea is, is that when algorithms become really useful is when they can create new meaning based on new data. 
So you feed it data such as your web history and what kind of search terms you search for. And there's an algorithm that runs that new data and tries to connect it to different existing patterns. And then it might spit out that you are a woman or a man or that you are 65 years old or you're 25 years old. Your listeners, I invite them to Google, what gender does Google think I am? (laughs) And they'll tell them what they do. And in the book, I talk about how Google thinks I'm a 65-year-old woman. And the idea isn't that I obviously am not. But it's that the idea that Google's using to determine who is a woman or who is 65, much like the NSA's interpretation of who is a citizen and who is a foreigner, is not really loyal to what we normally think of as gender or a citizenship. It's an entirely new database-created idea. So what really algorithms are doing are just parsing these new ideas and trying to fit our data into those boxes. Holy cow, because I, I read that, and then I went to one of your links that you provided, and I was so relieved to know that Google thought I was a male, and they even got my age range kind of accurate. <laughs> Fairly close. Well, as a man in his 30s, <laughs> to be called 65, I actually take that as a compliment. Did, yeah, like, like yeah, you're an old, wise soul. Exactly. How great. I, I found out by going to look at my Google um, uh, profile, I guess, that I'm really into blues and jazz and boating. Really? Is that true? No. Not at all. Not even close. <laughs> but somebody apparently on my computer is. I got to start watching that. Um, so when we talk about the algorithms, I mean, every Facebook has algorithms. Google will have them. The NSA has them. Uh, I'm sure all these shopping companies, all the uh, Amazon has them. What? But there's not. They're not sitting in meetings talking about the algorithms and sharing them. Those are proprietary, right? That's that's also an incredible point. The idea that. Um, algorithms speak truth is something that a lot of people in computer science talk about and they say that you don't need to see our algorithm you don't need to like look behind the black box but a lot of the issues are is that yes they're extraordinarily proprietary Google's PageRank algorithm that determines what kind of results are shown on a search term is so valuable that they have separated it across several different computers and several different countries, um, but more importantly, that they will never ever patent it, because if they can patent it, then they'll have to publicize it. And if they publicize it, then we will know individually what they value and how they value it. And obviously, a search term, a number one spot on a Google, uh, on a Google search is extraordinarily valuable. Mm. So they keep it proprietary, but then there's an issue in Wisconsin where there was a, an algorithm just recently that was used in a sentencing guideline for a man who stole a car. The algorithm is trying to predict recidivism, you know, the ability to commit a crime again. Yeah. Um, but he, it's, it's a, a group called ProPublica. They actually did a, a research about this last year, and they found out that it's extraordinarily racist. That means it often gives higher recidivism scores to black people than white people. And it turned out that this guy who um, is a person of color was seen to get six years in prison because of the algorithm and the judge, you know, threw down that sentence because wow. he to commit again. But the issue then came and when he tried to appeal, he couldn't actually go to the court and say this algorithm is faulty or this algorithm is racist because the algorithm was, as you said, it's proprietary. They couldn't access it and they didn't have any ability to subpoena it because it's private property. Holy cow. But I, I guess humans have been running on algorithms, right? In their heads. Yes. But so now it's be, but if once you institutionalize it then you can have institutional bias or whatever. Exactly. And I think that there's something also to say that when we, like, long division, how we all, when we're taught in school to do long division, that's an algorithm. How we do recipes, that's an algorithm. How we dance, that's an algorithm. That 
we have it's these protocols, these routines. The big issue that you mentioned earlier is often these routines that are privatized and made so that they're not actually communicable to the social world. That often when we think of politics, when we think of the ability to define ourselves or define our groups or kind of desire something, we think about it as interacting with a bunch of different competing interests. Rather, when Google tries to determine who is a woman or who is a man, it's only Google's voice that says you are a woman or you are a man. Mm. And thus, really, we're giving the ability, and this is a larger argument of the book, kind of philosophically, we're giving the ability to define the world and to define the very important categories that we use to describe the world to these companies or to these governments, but we really don't have any ability to talk back to them or really have any feedback other than data that helps the algorithm get better at doing what it wants to do. Boy, when you put it that way, that's terrifying, yeah. <laughs> right? Because otherwise, this is just, I don't care if Google sees me as a male or a female, unless all of a sudden it starts, you know, becoming picked up in other places and starts seriously impacting me. I think that's, that's I, it, it's really hard, yeah, because a lot of my students at University of Michigan where I teach, they're kind of just shrug their soldiers, like, it's a better ad, it's, it's a better targeted content, which is mostly correct. But, uh, yeah, the idea of defining the world for us rather than us having to grapple with the real complexities and conflicts of what it means to think about our complex world is, I think, yeah, really, really problematic. Huh. And um, I know you're going to teach us eventually uh, some ideas for how we kind of combat it. But in the end, too, um, aren't we the ones setting it for Google? I mean, they're, they're, we, we don't know the algorithm behind the picture, but we are the one that's – we're clicking on whatever, the food ad, and we're clicking on the motor vehicle ads. Um, how much of this con- do we control? The uh, – there's two ways of thinking about this, and I'll, I'll give both of them to be nice. Um, one is, is, yes, that we have choice – um, and that we actually do. We accede to the terms of service on Facebook and Google. We accede to the fact that, you know, when we use Twitter, it will take our data and maybe sell it to whomever, and they'll be able to define our worlds for us. The other, the other way I suggest we do think about this is that um, even though we are participating in it, we really don't know how that initial search will be taken. So, for example, there's an example on uh, in Facebook where yes, you can determine your privacy settings and make it so your yeah, post isn't public to your friends or to your family or to the public at large. But they, uh, there's an Australian company that actually leaked this memo that said that Facebook was selling information about teens and if they were depressed, lonely, or vulnerable, and then trying to sell that to advertisers. And so obviously there's no teen who's clicking the button that says, I want to right. be seen as vulnerable. And obviously there's you know really kind of big ethical question that, that rises when we think of children and, and the ability to be manipulated yeah. in whatever form. So I, I want to kind of have yeah. a pick up both sides. Yeah. And, and who could, boy, imagine who could access that. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I want I want to find as many vulnerable teenage girls as I can. That's, That's just scary. One of the most terrifying things. Yes, and it's completely, you don't need to be an authenticated, you know, right. firm who does ads to do this. It's just anybody who has a little bit of money. Is And, and I guess one of the things we're finding out, too, um, though, so NSA can, they, they have these algorithms, but they can also probably access some of this data and information. Companies like you're talking about can target very specific demographics and then the court cases, but these algorithms aren't accurate, right? So there's, sometimes there's an inherent bias. Sometimes they're just off. Um, so you're, part of, I guess, your argument is that we are, we're building, uh, they're defining our world for us and they, and they're probably defining it not we're not they're not defining it with us informed they're defining it with some errors 
Exactly. Exactly. And so um, there's this really useful way to think about this in terms of computer science, which is that if you have garbage in, you get garbage out, no right. matter how good the algorithm is, no matter how good the computer code is. And so if you think of data, you think of data and you say, we want it to be neutral, we want it to be objective, but often we're limited on how we can gather it and also kind of what people will tell us. And so there's an example I use in the book of this video called HP Computers Are Racist. And this is very, very compelling video of two people. One is a black person, one is a white person. The black person isn't recognized by the facial recognition camera, but the white person is. Mm. And so the banter between them is extraordinarily just fun and lighthearted, but it really gets to the underlying fact of when HP was developing this, they were not intentionally trying to exclude a large body of the population from use of the product. Rather, they probably used a bunch of light-skinned people, or maybe they used very well-lit people uh, yeah. in their training algorithm. So maybe the ability for a Silicon Valley firm to adequately represent the entirety of the world is, is difficult because there's a lot of kind of racial disparities in Silicon Valley hiring, but then the ability to create an algorithm that identifies every single person and every single particularity of people's faces, that's almost impossible. Right. Because the world is way too complex for a set of ones and zeros. And that's also kind of what I argue in the book, which is that we so want something like emotions. We so want something like feelings to be able to be datafied. And so we can put it into our Fitbit or we can put it into, you know, some database. But often sadness is not something that has ones and zeros attached to it. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, they're more like they're, they're, they're aggregating tangibles versus the intangibles. Exactly. Scary. That is terrifying. I don't remember where I heard it, um, but I heard recently, though, now they can almost take your searches through an algorithm and actually identify if you may have certain diseases. Yeah, there's there's even a... I was just looking at this a couple of days ago. There's even an app that you can download on your phone that uses a microphone that then determines your breath. Oh, and then wow. that can be run through an algorithm to then figure out if you have pneumonia or some respiratory disease. <laughs> It's well, only 87% correct, they say, so it's not perfect. Sure, but, but again, what happens when all of a sudden healthcare institutions can buy your algorithmic data to determine, to start sending you mailers about cancers that you don't even know you have? Or jacking up your premiums right before you oh, realize that you do have to yeah. What's happening to us? Do you remember just the days when we couldn't even get the, you know, we couldn't even get our router to get online? <laughs> or your computer would crash right when you like, yeah, you finished yeah, the Yeah, those paper. were the days. Yeah. Do you remember when AOL was all the bomb? Yeah, and, I, and, and there's something really interesting about AOL is because AOL was so kind of a, a closed environment mm -hmm. that they were just interested in serving their consumers. They weren't really interested in harvesting consumer data and then selling it to other companies. And so, weirdly enough, AOL being kind of that, that I kind of, yeah, like, like that, that huge place everybody went, it was actually better for privacy than the kind of decentralized web that we have now. And I'm not trying to say yeah. I, I love AOL, but it, it's more compelling to think of how we've changed in the couple you know, decades since. Yeah. John, let's take a break, come back, and I want you to help us understand how we can, can take this on, take on our data selves and, and own who we are again. We're speaking again with John Cheney Lippold, who is Assistant Professor of American Culture and Digital Studies at the University of Michigan, author of the book, We Are Data, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you make it through this digital world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we are speaking with John Cheney Lippold, who is an assistant professor of American culture and digital studies at the University of Michigan. And he's talking about his book, We Are Data, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves. It, uh, you know, it could be enough to scare you, but I know John wants to more inform you and, and help you take back your digital life so that you're the one that's actually, you know, defining yourself instead of letting everyone else do it. John, thank you again for being with us. No, thank you. Well, you have a, a really interesting um, point that uh, I guess goes very well with everything we were talking about before the break, that the, the fact that um, they're gathering data on your computer about you, they're creating algorithms and profiles of who you are. One of the downsides to this is that you simply could pay more for a plane ticket from one computer in your house and it would pay a different price from a different computer in your house, even for the same flight, even for the same everything. The same person. Yeah, that's when, when you were mentioning different people on different different computers, on the same computer, I'm sorry, um, we have to think of, on the Internet, it's not individuals who are accessing it, it's IP addresses. Right. So if you have a phone, it's going to be different than your laptop, different than your desktop, as you mentioned. So there's an example in 2014, and this is still continuing by different sites across the Internet, Orbits.com, the plane and hotel site, was actually looking at people's data and making these really interesting inferences, such as if you had a screen that was larger than normal, a screen size, or if you had an operating system that was a Mac operating system of the more recent variety, that they would actually front-end or push forward higher, more expensive flights than Hmm. the cheaper ones, because they thought that somebody who had a big screen and somebody that had a Mac OS would be more willing or had more disposable income than somebody else. This is also kind of a really dramatic effect of, of when we lose this control to identify ourselves because in the way that we normally think of markets, we think of them as regulated because there's some attempt to have sym- symmetrical information. I know what the car is, you know what the car is, we're going to agree on the price and then I'm going to leave. But much like used car people would start to sell lemon cars that would you know, fail after a couple miles off the lot, um, really we have no idea what these algorithms are saying about us, but they know everything that we're doing and they know mm. really, they can make all these inferences based not on actually what you can pay, but what on people like you can pay or people who have similar data as you can pay. And they're able to make a lot of money from this. Mm. You have a wonderful quote. It's so, uh, it actually... I don't know. It just makes you think. The quote is, who we are as data might soon become more important than who we are as people. And uh, so tell us us what you mean by that. When it comes to these big uh, tech companies, it's it's really about our profile. Yeah. And I think of – credit scores as being the kind of most applicable, that we can plead to a banker, we can plead to a credit company and say, my name's John, I have a job, I'm going to pay, I promise, I show you all these things that, you know, have demonstrated my historical capacity to pay in the past. But until that ability to pay is datafied, until it's put into a credit card company of, like, consistent payment across time, or if it's put into a bank account that has, you know, seven figures in it instead of six or five, then that's the thing that they're recognizing. They're recognizing not one's ability to persuade somebody, but one's ability to show through data how we are responsible or how we can be a good worker. There's accounts of um, job sites that are taking things as simple as if you have installed a browser that's different than the one that default came on your computer, then your resume actually goes to the top of a job pile. And this, again, has nothing about your capacity to be a worker. It's just about this thing of data that they found to be more or less useful 
than just a random assessment. You're an innovative thinker. You think on your own. You don't need the typical downloaded Google. Oh <laughs> when my when you put it like that, yeah, it just seems completely kind of dumb. Isn't that but crazy? But yeah, it, anyway, ma- it makes so, sense. Yeah. Boy, boy, that credit score, that, that is a, you really are nothing to these companies. I mean, I think human to human, they might differ. But yeah. you're nothing to the company if it's not datafied. Yeah, and increasingly, these credit companies are using these patents from companies like Facebook or other social networking that is saying it's not just your data that they care about. It's not just you pay back your credit card bill all the time and, thus, and you have a house payment that you're paying back well, and that means you have a good credit score. It's actually your friends as well that have predictive quality on your ability to pay back. So they found that a lot of people who had really good credit scores but had really close Facebook connections with people who had bad credit scores or poor credit scores, <laughs> that they would actually then not give a loan to that person because what? they imagined that that rich person or the person with good credit scores would actually have their credit be lowered by their social interactions. Unbelievable. Yeah. Where does this end? I honestly think that the, the point you made earlier about the, the, these things are never going to be correct. There's this fetishization of algorithms as being perfect, as being able to be faster and smarter than humans, that we still realize that humans are important to the world. And I think that we're going to come to this when we realize how wrong these are, but also how much we, enjoy, we do enjoy having control of our lives and how we do feel creeped out when things like prices or rights or credit scores are determined so far away from who we normally are or how we can even interpret them. So I am hopeful in the sense that in the next coming years we're going to be a little bit more cautious about how we employ them. But at the same time, I'm not going to be holding my breath for that moment, precisely because these algorithms are making companies a lot of money. And even the, there's an example of, in the book that I use about uh, police departments using data to do predictive policing. Um, so what kind of city blocks or what kind of people are likely to commit a crime more than others? And these algorithms have been roundly critiqued as being racist or as being classist. But the Department of Justice is actually giving $2 million to each the police department who employs these predictive analytics in them. So there's a moneyed relation that makes people who might not otherwise, you know, accept them be like, yeah, sure, we're a little bit in the in the red, so let's get this money from the government yeah. to employ these. Well, and I think the mere fact you're using the word algorithm instead of pattern or something, like yeah. algorithm to me, oh, geez, we're talking math, I bet, yeah. math and science. And um, I can have a PhD all I want, but I hate math. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I immediately tune out. But then I assume they've got to be accurate because smart people are making them, mm-hmm. but they're not. <laughs> it is precisely because when an algorithm is trying to determine, yeah, if you're a citizen or a foreigner, it's not trying to understand a citizen or foreigner based on what we understand a citizen or foreigner to be. It's rather their new version. And so the new version might seem, you know, nice and smarter and, yeah, really mathematically kind of accurate. But at the end of the day, it's not talking about what we normally think of as citizen or what we normally think of as gender or what we normally think of as if you're at risk to the police or not. Mm. Isn't that interesting? And then all of a sudden, yeah, you all we can go uh, start targeting you because of predictive policing or, yeah, your credit score is what it is, but we fail to see other factors, earning ability or history or changes in education or whatever. What uh, What should we do just as consumers going forward to influence this more, I guess, or at least to get more informed? There's a bunch of different tech-based solutions that um, we can think through. One is called Ghostly. It's an add-on plug-on that, plug-in that I really like that just shows 
every time you go to a new web page, it actually shows a list of the companies that are watching you. So it's a kind of nice reminder that you're not just kind of like surfing through the web without anybody attending to it, that there's actually, you know, several dozen often companies on each page who are very invested in figuring out who you are. Um, the other point of that, though, is that the normal right to privacy that we think about is that we close our doors or we kind of come and work with our family and that's the only thing that's connecting us to the world and so we can feel comfortable we can feel that we have the right to be let alone which in the u.s context is kind of the legal ethos of, of privacy but online often when we think of of going online we're not necessarily let alone ever so from our isp now um, surveilling us to all these other companies we're never able to be let alone so i turn to in the book this theory called obfuscation to think of how can we have privacy when things are based on not, you know, did you do this, but what is the pattern of you doing things? How, how can we figure out the pattern? And so obfuscation, often in the plugin, which is called Track Me Not, it's the creation of a lot of random noise to disrupt the patterns. And mm. so Track Me Not sends every six seconds to six different sites random queries from the today's headlines. Um, and then through that, every real query that tries to say, you know, that I use as John, um, will then be completely dwarfed by the you know, six or seven other queries of that second that are just random and completely nonsense. Oh, good. That, but then it seems then your then your your profile becomes the man of everything, or yeah, like the man all, of nothing. We're all schizophrenic. Yeah, it's like this guy is this guy's got some serious <laughs> issues. And actually, I'm fine with that if I don't have to pay fifty bucks more on orbit. That's so true. Yeah, I, I guess because eventually the anomaly or the the um, uh, the algorithm will eventually say, yeah, just treat him like Joe Blow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my heavens! So what was the other name? What was the other app uh, add-on? Yeah, a plugin. So one is called Ghosterly. Ghosterly, okay. Yeah, and oh, Ghostery. I'm sorry. Oh, Ghostery. And then the other one is called Track Me Not. Um, in the book, I talk about Track Me Not a lot, but also just if people go to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, or go to WeAreDataBook.com, they can access these a little bit and, and figure out more. Awesome stuff. Well, John, great work. Keep it up. We need somebody on the front line, at least cluing us in for what. Uh, what we are facing here. John Cheney Lippold's his name. Again, professor, assistant professor of American culture and digital studies at the University of Michigan. The book, We Are Data, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves. Oh, we got a lot to do, a lot to, lot to think about, don't we? Stick with us, folks. We'll help you through the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a uh, couple things. We're go- we will be putting up on our uh, Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show, a couple of links for you. One link is the link that you can go to on Google. Uh, and if you just follow the link, it will, it will tell you how Google is profiling you, right? So what it will tell you what Google sees your gender to be. Um, like uh, our last guest was talking about the fact that you may be a 30-year-old male, but Google sees you as a 60-year-old female based on what you look at, what you search, you know. Be careful what you look for. Be careful online. what you look for because it, it might, you know, throw you a little bit. But it's fascinating. I Mine was fairly accurate, but probably only on this computer. <laughs> Wait, are we back to the bodybuilder? Yeah. Ripped, okay. Uh, yeah, it says hmm. I'm a ripped 28-year-old male. 
Well, I think, you, I think you've ripped some clothes, maybe. That's that was not that was uncalled that for. That was that was a little uncalled for. I'm sorry. I mean, but you yeah. know, I mean, that was clothes kind of, get old. Yeah, sometimes they just wear out. Yeah, just because you work a. I mean, yeah. like just because I say that I ripped a hole in my socks doesn't mean I have fat feet. Mm. What are you, What are you trying to say? I mean, it could happen. By the way, speaking of fat feet, um, <laughs> Michael Phelps. You've heard of the acclaimed, uh, famous uh, swimmer Michael Phelps, twenty-three time gold no, medalist. Not ringing Never any bells. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's he's the bomb, and apparently. You, uh, you've also heard the fact that he has a 12,000-calorie diet consisting of eggs, pizza, pasta, all these different things to keep his rigorous schedule, uh, his swimming schedule up. And the reality is uh, not, not true, apparently. Not, not true. Well, that's disappointing. Yeah. I think we were all hoping we could sustain ourselves on a 12,000-calorie diet. <laughs> Why not? You say, but uh, the reality is he's he he's that's he, not true. He he just has. I mean, he has a, a higher caloric intake than probably most. But uh, twelve thousand calories—that's crazy. That's ludicrous. They have people on YouTube trying to match his twelve thousand calorie diet. Oh, I think they they got confused because twelve thousand is the number that he burns when he's exercising. Yeah, is that true? It has to be. Or or does it have to be? Because it was just said on radio. Oh, yeah. That's right. It's so. on the radio. Um, so that's that's some fun excitement uh, for you, a little star news for you as we're talking on um, Friday. By the way, a little update. YouTube is down. So if you want to see something you haven't seen very often, go to YouTube and you'll see an error, an internal error message there. Oh! Boo! I know. Jeff was wondering what he was going to do the rest of the day. Because if YouTube's down, there goes the afternoon. Um, But uh, on their air message, it says, a team of highly trained monkeys has been dispatched to deal with the situation. If you see them, send them this information as a text. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Good to know. Hey, another thing um, is happening to me. You've heard on the show, we used to make a lot of jokes about the fact that we, uh, here at BYU Broadcasting, they brought us a Coke machine. So now we have a Coke machine in the building. With no Coke. With absolutely no Coke in the machine. Um, but And I used to joke about a product that's in there that is water that is an Akai pomegranate blueberry water. And I used to joke about it. Now I'm addicted to it. Really? Yeah, love it. I think it's actually called acai. No, I'm calling it Akai. Yeah, good for you. I'm right there with you. I'm Akai, not going to call it Akai. I'm not going to feed that. Or acai. No, they want to make it like some really name, neat name. It's Akai. Yeah, that's a great way to get people to not drink your water. Yeah. What's in your water, Akai? There you Blueberry, go. pomegranate. Love it. And it hydrates so well. Uh, plus, uh, I got surgery scheduled. So this has been a really good week. So excited. Hey, let's take a break. We'll come back. Continue the joy straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. What's up, peeps? Good to have you on the show. It's don't, Friday. Peeps? Don't, don't do that. Peeps is where I... So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm peeling back the curtain a little bit, showing you my cool, hip, young side today. That you normally keep well hidden uh-huh. in the show. That Just I keep sequestered 
You've had your hip worked on, but no. I wouldn't say that you're hip. Oh, I'm hip. I am so hip that I know today is fudge day. Fudge day. Beep. Fudge Beep. day. You need to you need to watch your fudge mouth. day. The day, by the way, the earliest documented mention of fudge can be found in a letter composed by Emmeline Hartridge, who was studying at Vassar College, located in Poughkeepsie, New York. The letter detailed that fudge had been made and sold in Baltimore, Maryland, in 1886. Was it Vassar or Vassar? It's probably Vassar. Fudge. Yeah. Fudge. You gotta love fudge. Do you like uh, nuts in your fudge? Uh, sure. Do you like do you nuts like mar- fudge? Do you like marshmallows? No. You know, fudge mm. fudge is kind of polarizing, don't you think? I'm not a big fudge guy. See, I'm a sludge guy. I got tons of sludge in my gallbladder. They say, and also in uh, town town. No. He always is trying to dismiss my Townton Abbey, my little Sim City. Haven't you dismissed it? You're not playing it anymore. Uh, you know what I'm doing? This is kind of crazy. Your town has gone into neglect. No, uh, it's actually doing. It's thriving. It's the, but the, what the, I do, the, I just go collect taxes. Games. I go collect taxes every day. Oh, that's you're just about the money. I'm just about the money. Not about the people. Not about the people. So every time you drive Typical. to Arizona and you see that abandoned town, that's me. I'll think of you because you're the type of guy that uh, you know. Abandons his people. I, I go check on them. Mayor, I go, but they're one hundred percent happy. I can't get get them because they left. Them. No, and I've also been stopping tornadoes and disasters from attacking my town. Because, but I also can't progress until I allow. Do you have the difficulty rating on easy? Is that what? This no, is? Okay. no, no, no. I'm I'm mm-hmm. working it. Is your town like Wayward Pines, where you just live in this this huge dome that people can't get out of? No. No, but speaking of wayward pines, uh, Jeff will be doing his show. Um, we're calling it Screen Cleaning. You always pretend like you forgot what I it's actually, called. I, I, I don't know why. I keep wanting to say Spring Cleaning. I just It just comes off my tongue that way. But hmm. Screen Cleaning, your show will be in about an hour from now. You'll take the final hour of the Matt Townsend show. And, uh, yeah, it'll be really good. Fudge will be mentioned. Mm. Excellent. Today, by the way, is also Fresh Veggies Day. So if you're not into fudge, then grab yourself some fresh veggies. If you like to talk to tomatoes, if a squash Tomatoes actually a fruit, but, you know. Is this Veggie Tales? Because I have a feeling this is why nobody eats vegetables. <laughs> the tuba player is doing a great job on that show. Right. Um, veggie, fresh veggies, five portions a day, seven, ten. Nutrition, nutritionists agree that when it comes to fresh fruit and vegetables, most of us just aren't getting enough of them. And you can't think, don't think, do not think that fried potatoes are good enough as a, to count as a vegetable. Well, right. I mean, they're they're good until you drop them in the oil. And then... Just because you have a tomato on your hamburger doesn't mean you had some fruit today. Now, wait a minute. They're good, and then you drop them in the oil, and they're even better. And they're a carcinogen. Yeah. Oh, well. Happy Friday to you. Today, we got a great uh, topic. Um, Chris uh, Pegula will be joining us. He's, he wrote a book called Diaper Dude, The Ultimate Dad's Guide to Surviving Your First Two Years. 
diaper dude. He also has started an entire line of uh, diaper bags for dads. They're mm. like super uh, manly, hip, cool diaper bags. They're bags that don't look like diaper bags. Well, and what's amazing is Terry's been super excited about them. He's like talking about them. Jeffrey's still in that numb state where I don't even think they've packed a diaper bag yet. <laughs> they haven't left the house yet. Well, he he has other kids. It's not like it's a he new experience. He slurs his speech. He, see, see, to me, a, a man diaper bag would just be like a really loose and old duffel bag that you carry by the bag and by no handle. You don't mm, hold on to a handle. Grab the bag. Just grab the bag and it looks all torn and yeah. tattered. That's a man bag. That's a man diaper bag. Yeah. But how, you don't need a duffel bag. How many diapers are you taking? And there's nothing organized, no pockets on the inside. It's all kind of just thrown in there. Well, you got to have pockets. And the whole thing needs to be washable because, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. No, you don't. You have to be ready for any, any situation. Yeah, you need to be able to capture uh, and catch any last-minute no, fluid I think the right. point is to be able to come up with something on the fly like MacGyver. That's manly. So lots of duct tape. Yeah. That's good. Throw some duct tape in there. Who does? I always carry duct tape in my diaper bag. You never know. Um, we'll get to the fun learnings about uh, diaper from Diaper Dude. Also, uh, just some other crazy stories out there, um, including a little, uh, a little, I guess, a little warning: Do not pave your road in clamshells. You know, because flies and maggots may want to, you know, live there. I have an update on that story also. Oh, scary. All that ahead. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Two escape inmates described as dangerous beyond description have been captured in Tennessee. Donnie Russell Rowe, 42, and Ricky Dubois, 24, were caught after a car chase, reports the AP. The men escaped from a prison transport van Tuesday morning southeast of Atlanta after 30 say they overpowered officers, both of whom were shot to death. The carjackers... Uh, they carjacked a driver who stopped at the scene and stole at least one more vehicle while they were on the run. Holy cow. <clears throat> so they're out of circulation as back well, in custody. With two dead yeah. and two an older couple hijacked. I mean there was yeah, there were some you know bad things. Unbelievable. The teenager uh, three teenagers participating in the Los Angeles Police Department cadet program were arrested Wednesday night in southeast Los Angeles after they stole police vehicles, stun guns, radios and a bulletproof vest and led officers on two different car chases. Police Chief Charles Be- or Charlie Beck said Thursday. Beck said it's also possible the teens, two males and one female whose identities are not being revealed because they are juveniles impersonated police officers while driving the cruisers. Oh boy. And then the police chief went and turned on the bat signal. Because <laughs> that's what he did last night. Did, did Batman appear? Or no, 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 was that no. just in memory it of Adam tri- West? It was a tribute to okay. Adam West. But that, that was his day. He had Darn to deal it. with teenagers stealing police cars and equipment, possibly impersonating police officers, and turning on the bat it signal. It seems like they need to uh, review the applications a little bit better. You have to have like a 3.5 or above wow. grade point average. Yeah. So they're supposed to be good kids. Yeah. And apparently they had some, uh, you know, even bad Even good apples. kids have a bad day. Absolutely. Even even as Wells, Wells Fargo was reeling from a major scandal in its customer bank last year, the officials in the company's mortgage business were putting through unauthorized changes to home loans held by customers in bankruptcy and new class action and other lawsuits contend. The changes which surprise the customers typically lower their monthly loan payments, which would seem to benefit borrowers, particularly those in bankruptcy. But deep in the details was this fact. 
Wells Fargo's changes would extend the terms of the borrower's loan by decades, meaning they would have monthly payments for far longer and would ultimately owe the bank much, much more. Uh. Any change to a payment plan for a person in bankruptcy is suspect is subject to approval by the court and other parties involved, but Wells Fargo put through big changes to home loans without such approval, according to the lawsuit. So part of bankruptcy procedures, yeah. they just put this little clause in where we, we'd extend it by 20 or 30 years. So you get a lower payment, but sure. you're going to pay for. I mean, it's going to cost you two hundred fifty thousand. And he didn't ask for permission to do this. And uh, this note, uh, Dennis Rodman, he's in North Korea or was in North Korea. It depends, depending on the international dateline and all that. Um, he had a gift. For yeah, Kim Jong Un. He he brought the art of the deal, Trump's book. It was not signed <laughs> by Trump. It probably didn't come from Trump, but he brought the book. So it was probably a book that was given to Rodman that he didn't want, so he gave it to Kim Jong-un. I had this book at my house. I thought maybe you'd like it. Hey, do you want to read this? Not really. It's kind oh. of been collecting or collecting dust on the yeah. shelf. Trump dust. And finally, a blimp plummeted. <laughs> Sounds expensive. A blimp plummeted from the skies over the U.S. Open golf tournament in Aaron, Wisconsin on Thursday after apparently catching fire with spectators capturing dramatic footage of the crash on their phones. Some witnesses say they saw a person or possibly people parachuting from the blimp. While it's not officially confirmed if anyone was injured, TMZ reports, that's where we're going for the information on this, TMZ reports that the pilot suffered burns on his face and has pain in his neck and lower back. Emergency responders report they had to take an ATV to get to the crash site because it was not accessible by roads. A uh, life flight emergency medical helicopter reportedly airlifted someone from the site and all this because, you know, people saw on their cell phones a blimp catch fire over the U.S. Open. By the way, there's golf this weekend. Yeah. Well, and apparently there's that new extreme sport, blimp jumping. Blimp jumping. Blimp, uh, blimp, what do they call it when you jump and you have a a springy rope attached to you? Bungee. Oh, bungee jumping. Uh, Yeah, blimp bungee. Wow. uh, It's a huge thing in Australia. And it's sponsored by Blimpy Sandwiches. Mm. Good for you. Um, I'm sorry, Flimpy. Flimpy sandwiches because we don't promote any company, just companies that sound like real we, companies. We usually promote the company and then change their name like 10 seconds later. Yeah. So. It's just a way we can sleep in, you know, kind of slip in a little branding for gotcha. people. Good. Hey, um, did, you, did you notice that TMZ was doing that story? Yes. Some people question if TMZ is a real news outlet. And lately I've heard people questioning if Empty News is a real news outlet. Really? But we know Empty News is the The Empty News team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. I wonder what uh, TMZ's, you know, little uh, catchphrase is. It's probably a bunch of bleeping. I've always kind of felt like it was, go ahead, sue us, we dare you. Yeah, we're TMZ. Yeah. (laughs) Sue us if you dare. Um, But Empty News, first on the scene, fifth on the facts, Here's the uh, – we were first on the scene to this one. Residents of a small Rhode Island island, uh, Rhode Island community say that their neighborhood has been beset by a terrible stench after one of their neighbors paved a road with unwashed clamshells. I mean it seems like a really neat little road, little clamshells. Right. Uh, I mean it th- seems I, like it would be I've beautiful. actually seen that done before. Yeah. But it's the unwashed part. Yeah, you got to wash those. A property owner in uh, Tivertown, uh, Tiverton, put down the shells on an access road last week, but the unclean shells had meat still attached, which led to then a putrid smell as it decomposed. 
Videos then shows maggots crawling all over the road. Not appetizing. No, uh, no, maggotizing. True. And the, the maggots themselves then get squished, and then that creates another foul smell, and so on, and so on. The circle of life. The circle of smell. A uh, neighbor put up a sign including, honk if it stinks, and, and now there's all this honking going on. Blair Moore, whose family owns the house next to the door, says the smell is making her ill. Uh, the building inspector has issued a cease and desist order. Like what? Cease and desist smelling? Or cease and desist. They, ha, the guy. Ha, haven't they already finished the road? The update on the stories are making him remove it. Oh. Cease and desist feeding the maggots. Yeah. Do not feed the maggots any more meat on the clamshells. So the man is having to remove stinky the road. entire stinky road. Mm. Well, you know, now you learn. So we, we, we do this news so that others don't have to make the same mistake. This as is the whole ask forgiveness instead of permission mm-hmm. concept and this where it's back or backfired yeah that's why we wash all of our clamshells before we dispose of them exactly we're humanitarians nothing and uh nothing is more important than washing your clamshells <laughs> before you dispose of them a, a guy was struck by lightning while sitting at a desk a new york business owner says he's just happy to be alive after being struck by lightning while sitting at his office desk nick gamayel says he was inside his auto repair shop on Monday when severe thunderstorms rolled across the area. He says he saw a bright flash of light from the office light switch, and then he heard a loud crack. He kept, he kept on typing, though. Good He's for gr- him. That guy, nothing stops that guy And from on typing. a typewriter. Mm-hmm. Gamayle says it was a few minutes before he realized his left hand was blistering, from getting hit by a bolt that arced through the light switch. That's terrifying. So your building takes lightning and then it comes out your light switch? Scary. The garage manager was standing outside the shop door when he saw the bolt strike the sidewalk in front of the building. He wasn't injured. Gamal was treated at the hospital and released. And still can type. You know what, though? He did lose the P on his typewriter. So he did. there's that. Ah. And P's are hard to find. Yeah, that's why they tell you to mind your P's and Q's because you never know when they're going to get struck by lightning. Sounds really like good advice. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking Diaper Dude. uh, Diaper Dude, the author of the book, Diaper Dude, will be joining us and uh, talk about learnings of a new dad and lessons for all of us to live by. Father's Day is coming up, folks. Thank heavens for your Diaper Dude. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Our next guest is uh, Chris uh, Pagula, and he, when he first became a dad, the biggest struggle was feeling confident on his own with his newborn son. He relied heavily on his wife and judged himself as a failure, unable to, uh, to feel comfortable trusting his own instincts and fighting preconceived notions about what it means to be a dad. Now with his new release of his book, Diaper Dude, The Ultimate Dad's Guide to Surviving the First Two Years, he hopes to motivate fathers to take a larger role in the family dynamic and help out from the get-go without fear uh, of judgment. So Chris is here with us. Chris, thank you so much for your time this morning. 
Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a scary deal. I, I remember um, at the hospital when they hand you the baby and they, you know, it's time to leave. I remember thinking, are you kidding? Do you have any <laughs> idea how incompetent we are? And, and that was just me. And this, that was, you know, 20 something years ago. I lived literally maybe a mile and a half or two miles from the hospital, and I think that was the longest, slowest (laughs) drive I ever took. You're being so careful. No bumps, (laughs) no braking. How funny is that? But I think it really, especially Father's Day, this seems so fitting. Uh, we do, dads. We need to. We need to figure out a way to step up. And but, like you were saying, we have to overcome some of the fears first. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that it's a really exciting time today because I think the generation that is evolving into parents now, they see this as just as almost a natural progression that dads will be involved. And it's so different than when I became a dad 18 years ago. Mm. Um, and it's not even that long. But, um, you know, the shift that's occurring is really cool. And it is overwhelming. And I think that, thank God, there's more product and, and books available today to assist those dads. And also that the shift is so visible that you see it in media and in, you know, social media on Instagram, a lot of dads sharing photos of themselves with their children, um, that it's just really supporting that, uh, you know, new shift that's occurring. This is your second book. Um, your first book was From Dude to Dad. Um, and then in this one, Diaper Dude. So so what what have you seen and what do you see kind of is the progress? Because there is this there's I, I just remember there was this moment of even in my own marriage where my wife was was no longer this, you know, she was she was Madonna to me. She was like the mother of Christ and this perfect because uh, she brought this baby into the world. And I, all of a sudden, with that moment of the new baby, it, it changed everything about me, it seemed like. Yeah, you know, I think that especially the first few weeks or the first month, everything pretty much gets turned upside down. But with the idea of dads getting more involved from the very beginning, it helps to eliminate that sort of chaos that ensues and, and relies mostly on just mom being the primary caretaker. Uh, I, you know, in my book, I really focus on having dads get involved from the beginning as much as possible, like changing diapers, tag teaming, feedings, bottle feedings, and reading at night to your son and, or daughter, and just really becoming, you know, connected as much as possible, which will eventually, you know, overcome that, that insecurity. And, um, you know, you'll be able to be more comfortable eventually where it'll be like second nature that you are actually a dad and and it'll become easier. Yeah, we lived through the age where I guess the expectation of diapers and all of that was so much newer. Um, Is the younger generation, are they just more naturally kind of stepping in and it's natural Um, or or what? You know what? I think that, you know, we look at, um, you know, going back from that shift when I was having our first child, our our first son with my wife, um, even the baby shower experience was focused on the women only, and the baby registry experience was my wife did it with her mom. But today you're seeing more and more young couples together um, going into registry places like Babies or Us or, or Bye Bye Baby and actually picking out products together. And there's more dad-focused product as well, which invites that encouragement from da- for dad. You know, So I think that's really cool to see. And it's just an overall mindset. You know, since there was the recession in 2008, a lot of men ended up losing their jobs. Mm. So that shift became much more strong for men to be the primary caregivers since women, fortunately, still maintain their jobs. So um, I think it's just kind of being made more normalized 
if, if you will. Yeah. So the economy uh, has has been has played a part of it. Plus, I guess just. Um, it, it, it just seems like my kids, we have a, a grandbaby that's at our house a lot and my – I have five boys. They're all learning to you know, to take care of her, to change her and to, to be there for her. But when I grew up, I didn't uh, spend a lot of time babysitting but uh, my sisters all did. I, I guess more and more these gender roles are, are kind of disappearing and is – do you sense a respect for fathering? Is coming back. It seems like fathers used to be the butt of the joke um, in many, you know, sitcoms. Do you see that changing at all? I do. I think that you know, there's a, there's a strong movement that is uh, a lot of dads, especially dad bloggers, that are fighting that stereotype that dads are just babysitters. Yeah. And while they are portrayed dads in you know media and commercials as sometimes the bumbling idiot, you know, that is offensive. But I think that it's. It also needs to be reflected upon as like, well, this is who we were and this is what we've been for so long. So it's a nice reminder from my um, viewpoint that, you know, we're no longer this and we have a long way to go to still change that stereotype. But, um, you know, it it wasn't just, you know, like overnight uh, occurrence that the shift happened. You know, it took time and I still think we have a while to go. But um, I think it's becoming, like I said, more normalized. Is... um and I guess that's that's great, and that to me seems like part of this is the expectation that because it's not like dads can't do it, and it's not like we already know by research that we add a lot of incredibly important parts just by our own parenting approaches, um, maybe our, our our willingness to take more risk. Do, do you sense, um, I guess, uh, science? And I mean, it it almost seems like in many regards. It may not matter. I mean, I hear people talking all the time about kind of, uh, you know, creating the perfect baby and whether you're single, married, whatever, and we have the baby. But what would you what would kind of advice would you give to somebody who's maybe doesn't have a father involved in their child's life, um, but wants to, to kind of get a dad or a male role model around any advice for those parents? You know, I think it's really important for anyone um, to really get that support, either from family if you can, or um, friends that are really close to have that influence. That is, I mean, it doesn't have to be that there is a male um, influence that your, you know, your child's not going to be raised in a normal right. way without that influence. But for those that want that, um, you know, experience, I, I would reach out to family or friends and and just you know find that person that you can connect with because. Raising a family is takes a village, you know, even with um, a, a normal or, or a husband and wife, you know, experience, you still need family and friends for help. And, you know, there's so many shifts happening today, even in, in the family dynamic, whether there's gay families, um, you know, and two dads together, that's no mom involved. Right. And that doesn't mean that that's not going to be a successful relationship. I just think that the dynamics are changing so much, which is so exciting, but it really makes um, the experience easier, much more enjoyable when there's two to handle, you know, mm. and to co-parent. And it's I a think double that team. Yeah, and I think that's becoming more of the, the shift that's occurring where both partners are involved almost equally. What, what are the biggest, um, you know, fears that, uh, that you experienced as a dad and that you had to overcome? You know, I think the biggest was feeling competent enough to be able to handle this experience on my own. You know, from my perspective, my wife being pregnant from the very beginning was so 
basically dialed in since she was getting all the experiences and, and physical, mental, and emotional transitions happening in her body. She felt that transition from the moment she found out she was pregnant. Yeah. And for guys I, and for myself, it felt like I was just on the side witnessing this whole thing happening. And once the baby was born, I was just like, whoa, wait a minute. Now what do I do? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, right. And I relied a lot on my wife and her you know, comfort level, and she was just natural at doing it. And I think that she was able to boost my confidence by believing in me and trusting me that I can handle this. Because it was really scary when you think of, you know, being a six foot, uh, 190 pound guy holding this little, and, and my youngest was born at four pounds, eight, three oh, wow, actually. Tiny. Yeah. So yeah, they were all tiny kids. So I think that it was just like, can I be this delicate with a child? But once you see this baby born, your, your heart just melts and it's almost like you do anything to protect them. And slowly but surely, it's like practice makes perfect, perfect yeah. you know, and, and it's really about pitching in. Well, and it's it almost like you can't get the education any other way, it seems like, than doing it. A hundred percent. You know, for all the books, even for my book, you know, it's going to give you some information, but you are probably still going to fail. And, and that's why I think I'm able to write books today, because I have failed tremendously. Otherwise, you know, it's nobody's perfect. So um, I'm thankful for the mistakes that I've made, as painful as they can be. But um, it's enabled me to be able to put thoughts together and to hopefully write a book that guys can relate to and understand and get some advice and encouragement from. Yeah. What are some fun stories you remember from the early days of parenting? In fact, we we just had one of our co-hosts here on the show that just barely brought home a baby last uh, or last week, I believe. And um, so it's it's kind of fresh on all of our minds, but it also brings up a lot of funny stories and like, wow, did I just have that happen? You know, I always, and my poor son, he's going to like hate me when he discovers these interviews yeah. <laughs> when he's older. But um, one of the most insane experiences that occurred for us was when our youngest was intrigued by what was in his diaper and the mornings would wake up with basically a Jackson Pollock uh, painting around the room with the contents that were in his diaper, essentially. And that yeah. was not a fun experience. And thankfully, I got a tip from a, 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 an expert in the um, family industry about how to uh, get a, a baby, um, basically pajamas with the feet and cut them off and put them on backwards so that my son couldn't get to his diaper. <laughs> and that was a world of transition, a huge, huge uh, game changer for us. I was so thankful, and I include that tip in, in my book because that does happen, unfortunately. Yeah. But I never thought that would be something I'd have to deal with. And right. so it was kind of shocking. Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah. Lots, yeah. Of little, <laughs> lots of little secrets uh, as, we, <laughs> as we go through this. Um, again, we're speaking with Chris Pagula, and we're going to take a break. He's the author of the book Diaper, du- da- Diaper Dude, The Ultimate Dad's Guide to Surviving Your First Two Years. When we come back, we'll continue talking about being a dad and uh, the impact fathers can have. Also, uh, getting ready for Father's Day as well. Plus, uh, he has some pretty interesting products as well we can talk about that might uh, help you, uh, if you if you need a little present for a, a new father. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back. On the phone with us is Craig uh, or Chris Pegula, who is the author of the book Diaper Dude, The Ultimate Dad's Guide to Surviving Your First Two Years. He's got a wonderful website as well where he uh, designs and um, produces products like diaper bags for dads and, you know, matching clothes and ties for uh, dads and kids. But, uh, Chris, thanks again for your time. This uh, seems like a perfect time with Father's Day coming up. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, it's exciting because the products that you just mentioned are a great way for dads that are about to become parents um, sort of to connect and get involved because you're being honored in the fact that you are huh. part of this relationship. So the, the diaper bag becomes a symbol of that, you know, yeah. sort of uh, role that you're about to take on, which uh, is really cool and exciting. Because historically, the the male might kind of sit out some of the baby showers and a lot of it's not about the male, Um and yet, if I, it seems like the more we can get them involved uh, by getting them something or making them a part of these events, the more they might buy in. Absolutely. And I think that that's sort of, you know, where I felt and, and actually discovered it by accident. You know, selfishly, uh, the reason I started the company Diaper Dude was just because I didn't have a bag for myself. When, when my wife found out she was pregnant with our oldest, she came home one day with literally a dozen flowery diaper bags. And I took one look at them and said, where's mine? She said, take your pick. And I'm like, no way. I don't want to carry a leopard printed or a striped, you know, florally diaper bag. So um, that inspired the concept, and fortunately it took off. But then I discovered from speaking to people who would purchase the product, they felt like they were emotionally attached because it represented something for them, and it was really cool and exciting. So it just basically evolved into more of a philosophy than just a simple product hmm. that, you know, you don't, have to choose your, you don't have to lose your identity when you become a dad. You can still have a sense of style and confidence and um, reflect your personality. That's cool. And plus you can like, you know, deck it out, make it look like Rambo or whatever your favorite. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> your favorite thing is. is um, do, do you sense, because I remember uh, there was this moment when as a young couple, we all of a sudden, we were having kids. But so those those of my friends with kids and those without, it created this weird kind of have and have not. And it, it almost divides you in a way. Um did you notice that? And what are some ways that you can you can make sure your friends, family members are are okay through the change of family and babies? Well, you know, I think it's one of the things that, you know, I address in the book is talking about how your friends come and go. You know, those who are in the same mindset as you will stay around, you know, because they understand. But those that aren't maybe understanding of your flexibility to not be able to go out um, and your commitment to your family – you know, they usually fall by the wayside, and eventually, as they become parents or enter this stage, you know, they usually come back in. But, um, you know, we found ourselves a wonderful community uh, just through having children. And it's kind of like your relationships evolve. My children are now, you know, 18, 16, and 13. And I feel like there's been a shift in our relationships going through what our children are going through. You know, as our teenage years, you know, you kind of bond with those families experiencing the same concept as you and, and, and issues as you. Um, but those that are meant to be there, I think, will stick around. It's um, just kind of like your flexibility <clears throat> needs to be open hmm. in, in terms of relationships. And it almost seems like, you know, you could you could be a pretty enabling father that I mean, that supports and strengthens other fathers around you. If if we were st- strong father roles, then some of our friends that might be a little less unco- or less comfortable would let them hold the baby, let them hang out, let them, you right. know, carry the diaper bag. Uh, while you're going somewhere, and those that'll hang out and stick it out uh, probably will will uh, learn to be a good dad as well. 
Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, lead by example. And I think that's one of the things that I discovered in my book was when um, writing it, you know, I had this sort of concept that I'm different than my father. You know, I'm not the same type of person he was, and I'm going to parent my child differently. And then after writing this book, I realized at the end of the day, wow, I'm more like my dad than I thought I was. Hmm. You know, and that's a good thing. It's yeah. not so bad, you know. And, and actually, it was kind of cathartic and, and heartwarming to me learning that and, and sort of changing that concept or, or that idea that I had about him. What What have you seen that has happened in the relationship? I, I know when I work with couples, a lot of times the new baby kind of can become a wedge um, in the family you know, where one has to work, one stays home, or just the chaos and the confusion of life. Any any advice or tips that you give in your book about that? Yeah, I do. In fact, you know, I really encourage um, couples or, or dads to really be as vocal as possible emotionally and, and, and verbally to what's happening going on for them. I think it's one of the things that your relationship can be put sort of on the back burner when you're dealing with a newborn in your family. But it's one thing that you can't neglect because once you build up that sort of distance between the two of you, it's really difficult to kind of bridge that gap again when you build up resentments and you hold things back. And I think for guys, you know, we're kind of conditioned to not be as sort of expressive. And I, I think that is changing um, today, but I think we still need to work on it. Hmm. But, um, you know, one thing that surprised me, actually, which I do address in the book, is I sort of felt a bit of jealousy on the relationship my wife had with our son because she was sort of obsessed with dealing with him all the time. Yeah. And I was like, wait, what about me and my <laughs> relationship? And I was, I was confused by that. Yeah. Because I'm like, wait, this is my child. I can't feel jealous. But it's a normal and natural reaction. And being able to express that and talk about it um, really made it much easier for me to deal with mm. and you know, not take things personally. Yeah, I noticed. I noticed that very thing. I also noticed that uh, how naturally she did it. Like you were saying, my wife kind of naturally took to these things um, in a way. And then sometimes, sometimes she'd hand the baby over to me for other things that were. Uh, you know, like the the minute you have to put a suppository in a baby, all of a sudden it seems like that's dad's job or um, all of these other tasks that no one else would seemingly do. But right. in a weird way, too, I found that it, it actually gave me a role. It gave me something else to do um, that that allowed me to kind of have my like I got really good at putting the kids to bed or waking mm-hmm. up with them when they when they wouldn't sleep and finding ways to do that. So it seems like to me we could easily leverage all of these strengths uh, right. to create a really powerful duo. Yeah, and I, I just think back now with my daughter from being you know all my children I was always that, that involved to you know put them to sleep, but to this point now my daughter even being almost sixteen. Uh, she still enjoys me, you know, being able to like, you know, hang out and tell her sort of a story from my childhood growing up, you mm. know, before she goes to sleep. And that's just really, you know, a cool experience that even though she's older, she still appreciates that dynamic that we've established in tradition. Absolutely. What um, what advice do you give uh, kind of the rest of us about Father's Day as Father's Day is coming up? Um, you know, there's a lot. Not every father was perfect or great or even adequate. Uh, some weren't present. But in the end, what would you suggest we do to really make sure Father's Day is special? You know, I personally just love the fact that I'm surrounded by the family for Father's Day. You know, superficial gifts are always nice, I guess, but they don't really represent. And I think that being able to um, sort of have that experience where 
you could be told uh, verbally, you know, how much you're appreciated, I think really goes a long way. It, it helps to build the confidence and support for a dad to be involved. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think words go a long way and, and actions. So um, that's, you know, my idea of a perfect uh, Father's Day is just family nice meal and, and hanging out together. Yeah, totally. And everybody agree. getting along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody fighting. Nobody fighting. <laughs> exactly. Well, Chris, we appreciate it. Keep up the great work and uh, those your great insights. Chris Pagula is his name. Diaper Dude is his game. The Ultimate Dad's Guide to Surviving Your First Two Years. Uh, you can also go check out the website, uh, diaperdude.com. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. Talking Dads up next. Well, as we're wrapping it up, Father's Day this Sunday, and uh, you're not going to want to miss it. And hopefully you've already prepared, maybe gone to Costco and picked out that tie. (laughs) Hopefully not. We have to buy 20 of them. Yeah, you have to get it in bulk. Um, But uh, make sure you take care of Dad. Uh, Jeff and I are going to take a minute and talk about our favorite memories uh, with our fathers or even as a father, I guess. Um, Jeff apparently has some interesting travel experiences with good old dad. Well, what one of the things that I love about my dad is that he didn't have any problem pulling us out of school early before Thanksgiving so that uh, we could head up to Fresno and go oh, visit wow. grandma. Cool. So we had this Dodge van and you know how you know there are the two seats up front and then there are the two yeah. uh, rows. Like yeah, benches. the two rows. Yeah. He would take out one of those pack the back of the car with luggage, and then pile on pillows and blankets, and we could just sleep the whole way there. So this is before, you know, we had our iPads and our iPhones and could watch movies all the way. And before we cared about seatbelts. Right. So how cool is it that my dad, while everybody else is sitting in school, he would come during the school day and yank us out in front of our peers, and we'd head up to Fresno. Now that's a good good dad. Now, unfortunately, on the way up, we had to smell all the manure, uh, <laughs> but good memories. I don't even remember. We, my dad had a green station wagon, and we would face back in the old days when you would face backwards. Now Teslas have them, apparently. But um, you would face back, and you'd always look at the, the car behind you, and we'd, everyone would be playing games. It was super fun. Um, but then you, I always, I always realized that why didn't anybody want that back seat? Because it was so cool. And then it's because it seemed to always be in the sun. And, yeah. And you were baking. So yeah. I always ended up being like a little shriveled grape. Well, and that person inevitably ends up getting really dizzy too. Yeah. Yeah. Can't um, walk straight when they so get out. That Dodge van, by the way. Yeah. Of all the seven kids in my family, I was the only one that didn't get to drive it. It didn't oh, quite make it. I'm sorry. By the time it would have gotten to me, just bef- they they sold it. It, we had it until, you know, in order to honk the horn, you had to connect these two wires together, yeah. which is probably not very easy to do, you know, while you're driving. So if you get mad, it's tough. That hold, is... on, hold on. Let me <laughs> honk, put honk. these together and I'll honk at you. That's uh, I, I Did you crash any of your parents' cars? I did get in an accident in my dad's Honda Accord, which became mine later on. Yeah, thanks to – yeah, you crash it, you own it. <laughs> so I crashed my dad's car, and I was amazed. He didn't get mad. He just was like, okay, wow. Yeah, you did a number on that. 
And my dad was an insurance agent, too. Yeah, so, so you were hooked up. Yeah. Totally hooked up. I knew a guy. My dad, a uh, very generous guy giving, giving back to the community. A neighbor had a dog get loose, and my dad loved dogs. And it was like a big dog. I think it was like an Airedale, like a really big dog, and which is why my dad knew the dog, knew the neighbor. And he was at home in the middle of the day, and he saw the dog out walking around. And he's like, well, that's not good. I better get that for my neighbor. So he went and tracked the dog down, walked this huge dog back to the neighbor's yard, and then tried to put it in the neighbor's yard, but the fence was locked. It was a really like six-foot fence or whatever. So my dad, being the nice guy that he is, decided he was just going to lift the dog over the fence and put him into the fence. I mean, put him into the yard. So he, he did it, and he fought the dog. It's almost like the dog didn't want to go there. Like, it's like the dog knew something. So my dad finally got the dog over the fence into the other yard. And when he did, um, he, saw, he looked over the fence and saw that there was another dog, another Airedale, in the yard. And he had just placed somebody else's dog in his neighbor's Whoops. backyard. <laughs> so then what do you do? Yeah. Then do I climb back there and steal one of the dogs? And how do you make sure you got the right one? Ooh. So he just walked away. So – did you – how did your dad discipline you guys? Oh, it depends. It depends on what time of day, what time of the <laughs> – but he – like we didn't use – we didn't have great uh, like philosophy on how to discipline. It was just kind of like go to your room or don't make me get the stick yeah. kind of a thing. How did yours? Now, yours did crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean I'm not going to say that he never spanked us. Um, but I will say that most of the time he was more interested in, in, uh, laughing about it and having a good time and, you know, rather than really hurting us. Um, so he would make us do things like stand on our heads and recite nursery rhymes. That's a great idea. Or we'd have to recite the Pledge of Allegiance backwards. So if you fought with your brother, he's like, okay, get over here. We got to do the Pledge of Allegiance backwards. Yeah. My sister, uh, one of my sisters tried to get out of being grounded one time, and so he made her – he filmed her doing Alibaba's to her, <laughs> Alibaba bows to him. And uh, he – one time he took us out front to the pole and tied us up and sprayed us with the hose. Did he really? <laughs> yes. But the best one is uh, probably – this one's genius. Yeah. But I don't think I could do it. What? Um, he – Got a clipboard and a piece of paper and wrote this little message on the paper that says my, – because my brother and I fought all the time. And it said, we have been fighting. We got in trouble. And so my dad said – our dad says that we can't have dinner until we get 20 signatures. And he put 20 lines. I don't remember how many it was, oh, but he put heavens. the lines on the clipboard, to door to door. sent us out, and we went door to door and had our neighbors sign it. He says that he didn't think we would actually do it, but we did. He did it, and then that allowed you to eat. Yeah, that night. When? When? <laughs> how many times was DCFS called in on this? That is, I don't remember any calls. But don't you love how creative he's being? That is a great dad—a dad that's creating something interesting. I I can probably thank my dad for the most of my creativity. He yeah. would he would read Uncle Remus stories to us and he would do all the voices. Cool. That's cool. Yeah. And Great now you dad. do voices professionally. Yeah. yeah. I can probably thank him for that too. Yeah. Great dad. I love and, my dad. And now you're you've got cute little Stoss. Mm-hmm. And someday he'll look up and say, My dad's crazy. Just like you can say that. 
Congratulations, Stoss. You got a great dad. Uh, my dad was awesome too at, at taking me fishing, showing me that it's important to keep reading, to keep learning. I think my sense of humor, whatever sense of humor I have, came from my dad. He was a funny, funny dude. And uh, he also taught me uh, – I'd go watch him do crazy things like paragliding. He was crazy. Not paragliding. Um, what's it called? Gliders. Gli- no, uh, like airplane gliders. Like where they you tow an airplane up without an engine and you just glide in it. Parasailing. No, it's like a real airplane. Uh, paraplaning. It's a glider I think they call it. OK. I think. Yeah. Paragliding. Yeah. Anyway, he taught me to live dangerously. <laughs> so dads, happy Father's Day this weekend. We love you. You're the best. Where would we be without you? And uh, for the rest of us dads, let's pick up our games so our kids can be proud of us in the future as well. That is the show. Next hour, Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson will be up. And what's uh, the topic, Jeff? Real fast. We're going to be talking about teaching history with film. Ooh, does it really work? And we have a great motivational speech to open up the show. Powerful. You're not going to want to miss it. Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back on Monday. Good morning. Over the course of the next hour, we'll be speaking about movies. Are movies a good way for us to learn history? Speaking of history, perhaps it's fate that today is Fudge Day. Fudge, usually such a polarizing dessert. Well, we can't be consumed by differing tastes anymore. We will be united in our common interests, food-wise and entertainment-wise... Today we'll be fighting to put on a good show. We'll be fighting for and discussing freedom. We won't be fighting for freedom from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from boredom. And should we succeed in putting on a good show, today will be known as the day when the world declared in one voice the show is going to live on. It's going to survive. Today... We celebrate Episode 7 of Screen Cleaning. Wow, that was so inspiring. I I think I'm ready to put on a good show. How about you, Cole? Absolutely. Let's put that up there in the annals of the great motivational speeches of all time. Oh, that makes me proud to be an American right there. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Well, welcome to the show. This is Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson, joined here, as always, by Cole Wissinger. Yes, Cole, sir. hello. Hello, hello. So, um, first of all, we're not going to talk about this during the show, but if you want to hear our little discussion on Father's Day, because Sunday is Father's Day, go to the 8 o'clock hour. Matt and I just barely finished talking about our fathers and, and some good memories that we have of them, so make sure to check that out. We're here every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. With the exception of next Friday, we will not be doing a show. Sad day. But uh, we'll explain why later on in the program. Each week we're here, though, to help you identify entertainment that is appropriate for your family and that you can all enjoy together. And we're going to be shining a big old spotlight on in all that is good in entertainment. And one way that we do that is we give you the best in entertainment news each week. First off, let's start off with the best way to ensure failure news. 
So we're going to be talking about a different, a few different companies that are trying to uh, put out edited versions of films. Interesting. Fill the gap that was left by VidAngel as they kind of got pushed out of the yes. place. Yes, and we will be talking more about VidAngel later on in the program. But, you know, instead of a company, it's actually one of the movie studios that is – trying to put out these edited or airplane versions of these films, and it's Sony. So Sony could be applauded. Granted, they only put out about 24 titles, and they're kind of movies that maybe don't need to be edited in the first place. Yeah, I was going through the list of it, and it includes the five Spider-Man movies thus far, and I was racking my brain to think of what in the TV edits or airplane edits was even taken out of the Spider-Man movies. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not like there's blood and gore in those films. Um, so, and then actually over 20% of the films are Adam Sandler movies. So, you know, they're to be applauded. They had a great slogan, you're going to need a bigger couch, implying that you'll have room on your couch for your whole family. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, several directors and actors started complaining and they so much so that Sony has pretty much done an, not a full 180. Oh, it's close. But it's they've said a 179. We're not going to do it if the director doesn't want us to do it. Mm-hmm. So that is our best example of a way to ensure failure because there's no way that this is going to be able to <laughs> to succeed when they immediately change their tune. You know, once you know, once they get some complaints from a couple of directors and actors, right. Sad day. But we do have some good news later on in the program, as I teased. Now for the best casting news. Did you see the film uh, Daddy's Home? No. With Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell? I I knew that it happened. Yeah. I wasn't. <laughs> that is a great – man, that would make a, a great movie review for that movie. It happened. <laughs> I acknowledge that. Mm. Now let's move on. It was in theaters for a few weeks. Yeah. Well, I mean it did well enough that they're making a sequel. And I, I actually didn't care for the first film all that much. Like you, it it, it was a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll leave it at that. But I do – I'm so excited for the casting choices in the sequel because the sequel involves kind of like Meet the Parents where now the parents are meeting the the other parents. This one is their dads are coming to visit. And so now you're going to have this clash between the dads of the dads. Oh. And so Mark Wahlberg, do you know who who was cast as the parents? Here? I don't. This is news. Who Who would you imagine as – Mark Wahlberg's dad. Now, Mark Wahlberg in the movie plays this bad boy, rides right. a motorcycle, leather jacket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who the do you cool think? dad, yeah, as who, opposed to Will Ferrell. Who do you think would play Mark Wahlberg's dad? So, Mark Wahlberg, he's nor he's cool. He's from Boston. He's I don't know someone that gives me that kind of aura of a, a buff old dude, maybe. Okay, yeah, and think bad boy. So. It's actually Mel Gibson. <laughs> Mel Gibson plays Mark Wahlberg's dad. And same – you know, he comes down the escalator at the airport and there's this bad boy music and he's mm-hmm. got this nice jacket and rugged good looks and he's winking at all the younger ladies. And then Will Ferrell plays really this conservative, you know, straight-laced kind of a guy, very tidy, neat, anal mm-hmm. perhaps – and uh, who would you imagine as his dad in the film? Right, so we got to get this tall, awkward, kind of nerdy, brought back a little bit kind of a dude, um, an older guy that didn't really keep keep his younger physique, um, someone in that vein. Okay, well, this is one of my favorite actors, I right. think. Um, John Lithgow. 
Aww. John Lithgow. That's going to be good. And instead of this bad boy music as he comes down the escalator at the airport, it's love can keep <laughs> us together. Oh. Just kind of smiling like a yeah. dork. See, I can see that. I wasn't crazy about the first film, but when I saw those two in the trailer, I thought, okay, I would probably see this just for John Lithgow alone. Mm-hmm. You know, very good news. And then lastly, the best delivery news. Last week, we had an entire show dedicated to babies. Right. And I wasn't here because my child was was born. And so I took some time off and enjoyed uh, time with my family. But uh, the best delivery news, it, we're sharing it because my baby boy was actually born in the lobby of the hospital. <laughs> we couldn't quite make it to the delivery room. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was about five or six feet away from the button that you have to press for them to unlock the door and let you in. And I just kept telling my wife, we can make it. We've got five more feet, five more feet. And she was holding on to me and she said, I can't make it. And my boy came out in the lobby. Luckily, the nurses were able to get her on a wheelchair uh, before he came out all the way. But his head was poking out by that point. So um, and apparently this is kind of a big problem. Um, and so this is uh, – we're going to play a little clip from you. And this is part of our Ripped from the Headlines segment for the day. Man, it seems like Samuel L. Jackson does a lot of movies. Everybody knows that. <laughs> and it seems like he's been doing a lot of in the or on a type movies. He did Snakes on a Plane. And on the Matt Townsend show, we, we did clips from – Snakes in a toilet and snakes in a car. Well, this one is actually babies in a lobby. He plays a janitor who's so sick and tired of all these babies being born in the lobby and messing up his his clean hospital. Uh, So let's play a clip of that. I have had it with these mothers in distress delivering their small and fragile babies on my squeaky clean floors. Step aside, nurse. I'll handle this. Now, someone give me a diaper. Step. That sounds intense. I didn't know there were that many babies being born in lobbies. It's an epidemic. That's crazy. Well, let's take a break. Up next, we've got Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, who will be reviewing this weekend's biggest release, Cars 3, and he'll also share with us his favorite Pixar film. Stick with us. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. If you hear that music, then you know what that means. We are going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews. And uh, I love what Parent Previews is all about, you know, because parents can make better decisions of what to show their their families when they're more informed. And Parent Previews is all about informing parents and families about the content that's in these films that we go and see so that we can all be safe and have an enjoyable experience. And today, Rod, you're going to be talking to us about the new Pixar film, Cars 3. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Hi, Jeff. (laughs) So uh, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about Cars 3, especially after what I considered was the train wreck of Cars 2, which I thought was worse than straight-to-DVD quality. But that's neither here nor there, because today you're talking (laughs) about Cars 3, and hopefully you've got some good news for us. 
Oh, I wish my wife was here because she thinks Cars 2 was wonderful. Oh, and no. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have called it a train wreck, but I'm a little more like you. I, I wasn't a huge fan. Cars 3 really goes back to the original Cars experience from uh, many years ago. Uh, many years, especially if you're a young child. And so parents, the first thing's I'll, a thing I'll tell you is if your kids are really excited about seeing Cars 3, go grab a copy of Cars and show it to them because it'll help them understand these characters far better because this movie is assuming that we know the backstory on each of these characters and who they are and where they came from. And uh, in this film, Lightning McQueen, who of course is the little red race car that is the star of this franchise, well, he's having a midlife crisis, which, you know, kind of strikes a chord with, I think, a few parents in the room, uh, and my, myself included. And when I was watching the trailers for this film, I was quite concerned about, hmm, I wonder, is this one really going to still be able to keep the little ones engaged while the adults are still having a good time as well? Well, trust Pixar. They managed to pull it off, Jeff. They did wow. it again. Uh, I, I, well, I sat in a packed theater about theater of about 500 people, and adults and kids were well engaged for the whole 109 minutes, which is a little long for a, an animation as well. Yeah. So you mentioned kids in the audience. I know that from this first teaser trailer that they put out, it looked like it was kind of going to be a darker film than the other installments. Should I be taking my five-year-old and three-year-old to see this movie? <laughs> well, you know, the three-year-olds, I'm of the opinion that, boy, when they're under five, maybe four years of age, I go get a babysitter because, you know, at those really, really young ages, 109 minutes, come on, I can barely, I, I have a short attention span and I can imagine for a three-year-old. But this movie is rated G, not PG. Mo many of the other Pixar movies did get a PG rating. This one's rated G. There really isn't much in the way of objectionable content or content the parents will find concerning, except there are a couple of scary scenes. Lightning McQueen discovers that, I mean, he's winning race after race, but then all of a sudden he discovers a new car is on the race circuit. And this new car is young and fast and full of technology. And guess what? He can't keep up to the new car. So Lightning McQueen has this tremendous car wreck as he tries to keep up. Uh, you can watch that in the trailer. You see little clips of it. That may be scary for the youngest of kids. And then there's another scene where Lightning and another friend uh, unwittingly become involved in a demolition derby, which is quite fun. But it as well could be a little bit scary at the beginning for the littlest kids. So parents, you know, uh, if you've got little ones that are six years old, don't drop off and run. Come see this movie with them. Put an arm around them. But otherwise, they'll probably be okay, and they'll probably have a good time. So what was the grade that you gave it? Well, we gave this one an A-. minus. Wow. The minus, it, you know, this isn't life-changing cinema. If you got to wait for this one for home viewing, go ahead. But at the same time, it's a very well-done film. Uh, it is tough, Jeff, to find G-rated movies that you can take your younger kids to that are engaging, entertaining, have some good, positive life messages. And this one has all that. So, yeah, it's in our A category. Well, that's great news. You know, and one concern of mine might be shared by a lot of people out there. We talked, uh, you and I talked in a different discussion about how VidAngel, the, the filtering company, has this feature that you can filter out an annoying character, Jar Jar Binks, from uh, Star Wars Episode One, And I think for a lot of people, in uh, the reason they didn't care for Part 2 of Cars 
was that it was a little bit of overkill on uh, Larry the Cable Guy because he was the main <laughs> character. Now, what's his role in this movie? Is it kind of downplayed? Does he kind of take a back seat in the car, so to speak? As soon as you mentioned Jar Jar Binks, I thought he's aiming for Mater or Mater. <laughs> uh, it, he, he has a smaller role in this film, and I think that they are trying to learn a lesson that many, a mistake that many other studios, including Disney, make. They will bring out a movie that has a funny sidekick, and then they think, wow, everybody laughed at all those scenes. Let's make a whole movie like Universal's yeah. Minions. Oh, hit me. I, I, I can't sit through that one again. Me neither. <laughs> and yet I like the Despicable Me franchise for the most part. I think it's got some good things. I hope in two weeks we're pleased with the next Despicable Me. Um, so in this one, Mater is just here and there. He's got a couple of scenes and the kids found him quite funny. I didn't find it to be too much. So I think they're they're trying to find that balance. Okay. So I'm curious to know if you had to choose one Pixar movie that was your absolute favorite, could you do it first of all? And what would it be? You know, to quote Forrest Gump, Pixar movies are like a box of chocolates. I open the lid and it really depends on how I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, because I, for the most part, I like them all. There's been a couple, I, I could more easily answer this question by saying Wally didn't really work for me, but for the most part, the rest of them I've really enjoyed. Probably The Incredibles is up there as one of my favorites. Uh, Toy Story, of course. Who cannot like Toy Story? Wonderful franchise. And each one just got better. I, I love them all. Uh, but then sometimes I'm in the mood where Up, you know, just really, I love that film. Ed Asner uh, playing that character in Up. What a great job. And then there's times Ratatouille. I, I just want to go cook something, you know, <laughs> like so they are just so diverse in what they try and do. And uh, so I find that they kind of satisfy a variety of moods for me. Well, Rod, for the most part, you and I are spot on. Up came out right after I got married. So mm -hmm. at the time, that was my hands-down favorite because it just hit me on an emotional level. I think overall, though, and I, this is kind of cheating, but I'm kind of pushing the Toy Story franchise off to the side and making it its own thing. And with that in mind, I'm going to pick The Incredibles as my favorite mm -hmm. Pixar film. And yeah, it, it, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Toy Story kind of stands alone. Uh, and But The Incredibles, I know. I just, I love the family dynamics in that movie. It is so hard to find a film that celebrates family life the way The Incredibles does. And I thought they just did a fantastic job of how each of those superhero traits really relate to how in a family each of us have things that we can bring to the table, quite literally in the case of The Incredibles, that we can bring to the table that help our family become a, a great, well-functioning unit. And that's what I really enjoyed about that film. Well, Rod, we really appreciate you here on Screen Cleaning. And, uh, you know, even though Cars 3 may not be your favorite Pixar movie of all time, <laughs> it sounds like it was still very entertaining and and uh, well worth the view. So go out and check it out, and but maybe leave the kids five and under at home. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning. We're actually going to be speaking with a gentleman about accuracy and in films and whether or not historical movies should be shown in the classroom. We'll be right back.
You know, movies have always been a way to disseminate information and ideas throughout the world. And this year, there were three Best Picture nominations that were considered historical movies. But are movies the best way for us to learn about history? Well, here to speak to us more on that subject is Scott Metzger, who's an associate professor of social education at Penn State University, and he's also the co-author of the book "Teaching History with Film." Scott, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I was really excited uh, when I when I found out we're going to be speaking with you because I remember, you know, in junior high and high school, my teachers showing us all sorts of films and never really knowing if they were. If there was a purpose for them showing it or if it was just an off day for them. <laughs> I uh, And, you know, it's a tough thing to do in schools anyway because I remember we watched uh, a portion of Roots and uh, my teacher put this big piece of, of construction paper over the screen when there was a scene of nudity. So it's it can be a tough thing to do in schools as well. Um, I'm curious to find out if if you think that movies are the best way to teach us about history. Well, I certainly wouldn't say the best way. Um, I, I believe that there isn't really one best way with any kind of technique. I would rather put it as movies are potentially one more tool that teachers can have to help students learn more about history, um, certainly to become maybe more excited, more engaged in it. But it's not an easy tool to use, and that's the challenge, as you were alluding to, it's not always clear um, why a teacher might show a movie or use a particular film. Um, and, and so that's probably the way I'd put it. Yeah. And you know that you bring up a good point, too, because every student is going to learn something differently. You know, some people learn through music, others through film, others through reading. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about accuracy in these historical films. And I, I mentioned that there were three Best Picture nominees this last year that uh, were hi- supposedly historical films and, you know, they were oftentimes oftentimes films like that are criticized for not being all that accurate. Do you think that's forgivable? Do you think it's okay for filmmakers to take creative license when it comes to making these films and telling these stories? So this is a perennial debate about history movies. Um, one way to look at the challenge uh, from the, the filmmaker's perspective, uh, a scholar named Robert Toplin, Toplin published a book uh, about 10 years ago, called In Defense of Filmmakers, um, that was uh, um, pointing out that you can't actually recreate history. A lot of it is so far in the past, it's irretrievable, lots of things we can't know for certain. So unavoidably, you're always going to have to fill in the gaps with imagination. Take something as elemental as dialogue. We can't know. It's impossible <laughs> to know what many historical figures might have said in private. We might have, say, a diary surviving as a record that would indicate, oh, on this day I had a conversation with so-and-so and we talked about this thing. But the particulars of what they said, we can't know. So even a meticulous, carefully researched history film that really wants to take history seriously is still going to have to, in a sense, make things up. Even language. 
Um, it's very, it's a very rare history movie that's going to use lots and lots of period language. Um, maybe The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's uh, movie about uh, Jesus from uh, a few years back, that used entirely period language. But that's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah. Now, do you think that rule also applies to documentaries? Because those are, you know, very much grounded in reality. They'll take uh, dialogue that's from journals and and things of that nature. But don't they also take some of that creative license in order to to present the story? This is a a more complicated question than I think uh, many people have stopped to consider. Uh, We have this kind of traditional aura of documentaries. Well, they must be factual. Uh, they're informational. They, they won't make things up like in movies. Well, this breaks down when you start to look at the specifics. Uh, there are many feature films that we would classify as entertainment, which are still very carefully researched, uh, that will present a great many elements with a, uh, an attention to accuracy. And there are documentary films that, well, many of them will, will try to do that as well, but then there are documentaries that have other purposes. Uh, documentaries try to attract an audience as well. They want to entertain an audience as well. Um, sometimes they've, well, they all have a particular agenda um, or a, a point of view. And so sometimes trying to advance that perspective that they you know, their purpose for making the documentary film, that can take center stage. And that can lead to some choices that will represent history in particular ways. Um, one example that comes to mind is uh, Ken Burns, you know, probably the most famous documentary filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, he did his great series on the history of baseball um, a while ago. And um, certain ball players like uh, I think Ty Cobb, barely in it. Well, the history of baseball without some of those figures is quite a different thing. And Ken Burns, his perspective as well, they had racial attitudes that I don't want to reinforce, I don't want to bring those up, I'm, so I'm going to, in a sense, choose to leave them out of my narrative. Yeah. So it's really a very thorny question, the difference between the entertainment feature films and documentaries. Um, but in general, I would say that the, the difference is going to be a, a balance of um, entertainment and imagination, where the feature films, movies, are freest to engage in sometimes very wild imagination. And documentaries are going to be a little more constrained in what they can do there. Yeah. So, Scott, let's talk about let's talk about these films in the classroom. You know, as a student, you're just thinking, well, my teacher's being lazy or they had a long night. Is that really what's going on? Or why why are these teachers showing historical movies? So there are a lot of possible reasons. And we shouldn't um, we shouldn't uh, dismiss that sometimes there can be a very mechanical reason for it. Um, what if you can't be there and you need a substitute teacher and that's something that somebody can, a guest can come into the classroom and can get that going and get the students going on a task. So you can have a defensible, what I might call a mechanical reason for showing a movie. But in my own research and the research of my colleagues, uh, we found that, that uh, most teachers are able to articulate a lot of other motives 
uh, ones that aren't about, well, I don't want to teach or I'm not going to be here. It's, they actually have intellectual, academic, educational motivations, and uh, they can run the gamut. So is there a danger in that? Because it seems like students would, you know, go home having seen a film and maybe they're misled or given misinformation about a certain historical event or a portrayal of an actor who, you know, portrayed the president of the United States. What's what's the danger in showing these films? I think that's a really fair question. Um, It's. It's difficult to answer because we could say, well, movies make things up. We all know they make things up. Students in studies that we've done will say they know that movies make things up. But which things? It takes a lot of expert knowledge to be able to sort through uh, the things being presented on the screen and to say, you know, oh, wow, that's a really insightful historical analysis or that's really insightful depiction versus, well, that's completely made up, that's false, that's misleading. That's the danger, is the inability to sort those things. And so people who are critical of using not just movies, but you could say any kind of media, so for example, historical fiction in the classroom, can very reasonably make that uh, critique, and it, it's, it is a fair one. On the other hand, just because schools might say, oh, no, we're not going to expose students to these potentially confusing historical texts, that students won't be encountering them. We know that uh, students spend a lot of hours every day engaging with various kinds of media, and the rise of on-demand digital uh, access and streaming, uh, services like Netflix or, or Hulu, students can have access to vastly more historical films, documentary films, on their own time, and uh, there's a lot of evidence that they're watching them. So if schools say, no, we're not comfortable with movies, we shouldn't uh, you know, teach students how to um, engage with them as historical texts, well, that just leaves everything to fall into private time where there's absolutely no support, usually, or a chance to engage with them intellectually. Yeah. And, you know, it, it seems like one positive aspect of this, and I, I this is probably true for myself, is that... You know, maybe it's not the full truth, but maybe it's just enough to spark interest in the student to to where they'll go and they'll do more research on the topic or a certain person. And uh, to me, that's 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 a great thing. Yeah. So, uh, Scott, let's do this. Let's take a break. And when we come back, uh, I'm I'm hoping that you and I can share with each other some of our favorite uh, historical films and portrayals in these historical films. We'll do that. We'll take a break and continue the discussion here with Scott Metzger here on on Screen Cleaning. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Uh, I'm here speaking with um, Scott Metzger, who's an associate professor of social education at Penn State University, and we've been talking about teaching history with film. And Scott, I thought it'd be fun now for us to share some of our picks of favorite historical films. Now, there are a few different categories here I want to cover with you. So there's first, there's favorite, most accurate historical film. There's your favorite 
most inaccurate historical film and the best portrayal by an actor of a historical figure in one of these films. So uh, if you don't mind, I'll go first. My favorite movie growing up, and it probably still is to this day, is one that I'm going to list it as my favorite most accurate film, even though when I did some more research on it, there were, you know... There were differing opinions on just how accurate this film was, but uh, my favorite film is The Great Escape with Steve McQueen and James Garner and James Coburn, Richard Attenborough, Charles Bronson. I could go on and on, but uh, wonderful film about uh, these prisoners of war who are digging a tunnel to escape from this prison. And, uh, yeah, obviously there are some inaccuracies or some creative licenses that the filmmakers take. For instance, the biggest one is Steve McQueen hopping this wire fence on this motorcycle that I found out wasn't even a motorcycle that had been around at that point. Just a very entertaining – and as a little boy, how cool would it be to see these grown men digging tunnels? You know, That's kind of the dream as a kid, to dig these big, giant holes. So that's my favorite, most accurate – and I do air quotes on that – historical film. How about yours? Yeah. uh, There are so many to choose from, especially if we open it up to, you know, the classic classic film era – it's um, as you point out, though you know even even the ones that will contain some really um, useful historical insights are still going to have some made-up details. So I suppose for me, I would go to like you a World War II movie. Uh, I'm a big fan of Sam Fuller's The Big Red One from 1980. Uh, it's a I think a, a war movie that deserves to be better remembered. Uh, it's one of uh, Mark Hamill's uh, few non-Star Wars movies from early in his career. And uh, Sam Fuller himself was a, a World War II combat vet, and he wanted to make, unfortunately on a, on a very tight budget, he wanted to make a World War II movie that would realistically or maybe authentically capture his experiences. But... And it is semi-autobiographical, but he doesn't use the real names. Instead, he uses his characters are archetypes for the kinds of men that he served with uh, in all the various uh, theaters in uh, North Africa and in Europe in World War II. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point, too, and I forgot to mention this when I talked about The Great Escape, but they start the movie with a disclaimer at the beginning saying that the names have been changed and the characters that are presented here are kind of a combination of of different people. So, yeah, I haven't seen that one. Interesting. Okay, now, uh, how about for uh, favorite inaccurate historical film, (laughs) I chose one that I thought was thoroughly entertaining, uh, which is U571 with Matthew McConaughey, where they're they're trying to steal this— John Bon Jovi, as I recall. That's right, John Bon Jovi and the late uh, Bill Paxton. They're trying to steal this cipher machine that that they'll need to decode messages from the Germans, and they— they hijacked this German U-boat. Very entertaining, I thought. But uh, the research that I've done on this film, very inaccurate. Yeah, it's, it's also a, a film that got under the skin of um, people in Britain and right. Poland in that uh, it's an Americanization of what was a European story. 
So it's one of these, um, you know, based on real events or inspired by real events kind of movies. We often will see those where they'll flash that at the, at the start of the film to let you know, hey, we want you to think that there's some authenticity. This isn't a completely made-up fantasy. But we are not literally trying to recreate what happened. In the case of U-571, uh, it was implying that American <laughs> ships captured the Enigma machine. That right. Was secret to breaking the, the German code. Um, in, in my case, if uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say my inaccurate pleasure would be uh, 300, the movie about the Greek and Persian battle of Thermopylae. And uh, this is a, a, a movie that is wildly visually stunning and also contains a lot of distorted elements. Uh, certainly the depiction of the ancient Persians is very fanciful in 300. But in its defense, the bulk of the story, the bulk of the narrative of, of events, pretty closely follows at least one of the lines in the best surviving source about the Persian Wars, which is the ancient historian Herodotus. So in a sense, even a really inaccurate or un fantastic movie like 300 from a certain perspective, we can say there is a lot of authenticity or accuracy to some aspects of it. Yeah. And then, uh, Scott, we've got about a minute left here. I just want to to share with you really quickly my favorite portrayal of a historical figure. It's actually maybe a tie between Daniel Day-Lewis in Lincoln, Lincoln, who a lot of people said Daniel Day-Lewis played a better Lincoln than Lincoln himself, <laughs> and uh, also Tom Hulse from the film Amadeus, which is also one of my favorite films ever. Both both great movies. I had, I had uh, Lincoln on my list as well. Um, in the case of Amadeus, the big criticism there is that it made him, and this is part of the play it was based on, it made him a free spirit, a little more than he probably was. Right. It took a lot of work to be Mozart, and it didn't all come easy to him and instantly. And that aspect kind of got played down in order to advance the theme of the play and then the movie. So you chose uh, Daniel Day-Lewis as well from Lincoln. That, and also um, I'm a big fan of Wolf Hall on PBS with Mark Rylance as Sir Thomas Cromwell, uh, Damian Lewis as King Henry VIII. This is uh, a very welcome counter-narrative to how those figures are usually depicted as rather oily or, uh, in the case of King Henry VIII, as a sort of, you know, super obese, uh, monstrous uh, man. Um, uh, though those are uh, excellent uh, counter the depictions of those uh, historical figures. Well, Scott, we've had a lot of fun here with you on Screen Cleaning this morning talking about uh, teaching history with film. His name is Scott Metzger, and he is an associate professor of social education at Penn State University. And again, just a great time. And, uh, you know, filmmakers might take some creative licenses when they're making these films, but the stories are important, and uh, maybe they'll spark some curiosity in us to go out and do the research ourselves, find out the real truth. We'll take a quick break. When we return, we'll be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning. (music) 
Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Man, Jason and Brian at BYU Sports Nation get to be introduced with that awesome, awesome song that uh, a lot of people probably know from the film Bend It Like Beckham, which I have not seen, but it's a favorite of mine. It's Punjabi MC, MC, I believe is the name of it, or that's the name of the artist. Anyway, welcome to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. How are you guys doing? We're doing good, Jeff. Hey, don't feel bad. I have not seen uh, Bend It Like Beckham either. Nope, I haven't. See, see, none of us have. So you're in good company right now. <laughs> I think I remember that song, though, from like Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah I know in that I film, too. Seen. Oh, oh, dude, you got to see I that I haven't one. seen it. I have seen that one. Yeah. So uh, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about uh, a little baseball game that went on yesterday. Not the, the one that a lot of people would think, but the congressional baseball yeah. game. Did you watch that? I, I did not watch it, but I, I certainly know the situation surrounding it. And I love the fact that they played it, and it was kind of a, a kind of an in-your-face, we're not going to be intimidated, we're going to go out here and play. I thought it was great. I, I love that. To, I tried to watch it, um, but, you know, I, I, was, I was watching it on Fox News, and my mom, um, who, you know, watches CNN, was like, I'm not watching this, change this. <laughs> <laughs> change this, change this, please. Well, yeah, because I'm sure a lot of people – who uh, don't like watching professional baseball are not going to sit down and watch unprofessionals play yeah. baseball. Yeah, that's I mean, actually, that's actually that's that's more intriguing to me though. Actually, well, there's a, <laughs> yeah. the the uh, the margin for error is a lot larger. Right. In, yeah, in, in the professionals. You, you know, I will admit, whenever MTV would do the celebrity softball games, I would yeah. always always watch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was always fun to watch, you know, Mike Piazza hit a home run while everybody else just sat there. Well, see, and they do that (laughs) during, like, the uh, Major League Baseball All-Star Weekend. They'll have a celebrity game. And it's amazing. Like, like you should, you just go ahead and plan on at least two or three hamstring pulls, oh, yeah. regardless. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. somebody's going to pull a hammy, guaranteed. There's a strong correlation with – so if there's celebrities that are maybe, like, singers, right, and artists, if they can dance good – and now, by default, everybody can dance good because they, you know, they, they hire uh, people to do that stuff for them. But the ones that really can really dance good, like Chris Brown, for example – you you watch him in in these events and he's just killing it and you can look at the athleticism right and that's why I, I try to tell my wife I'm like see babe I I know I can dance I'm an athlete <laughs> how cool would that be to see somebody like Chris Brown just you know doing the moonwalk or something catching a ball as it goes over the fence or something you know <laughs> <laughs> that Man, would be amazing. sweet I mean these kids now I don't I don't know if this is real or not but I know that there's like all these these vines and stuff going viral with kids. Doing a backflip and then catching the ball with one hand. I could definitely see Chris Brown doing something like that. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want to tell you guys something. Uh, I think you're doing a great job on BYU Sports Nation. And so much so, in fact, that next Friday, uh, I want to give you our hour of the show. Sure. I, I want I want to give you yeah. our hour, the 9 o'clock hour of the Matt Townsend Show and uh, you guys can just do an extra hour of content on your end. You know what? That That is very kind of you because I actually think we can fill that with something. I think it's called the state of the program. Really? The BYU football. Yeah, it's tomorrow. Next Friday, for those that may not know, is BYU football media day. Let them know. It is a big, big day. It's, it's the day Cougar fans wait for every year. They love it. And the state of the program is just part of a very busy Friday next week, June 23rd, not only do you have the state of the program, you've got two hours of BYU Sports Nation plus a very, and I mean very special um, program. It is the Lavelle Edwards Coaching Tree. 
It is a, it's it's going to have former players and coaches both in person and video and on video paying tribute to the late Lavelle Edwards. It's going to be awesome. You're not going to want to miss any of our stuff next Friday. Wow. So it sounds like maybe it was kind of written in the stars. It was yeah. it was meant to be, Jeff. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, okay. Now, something that Matt loves to do every time we talk to you guys is he likes to ask you if you're doing your show today. And I'm going to do something a little different. Since okay. we won't be doing a show next Friday, mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about – I'm just going to give you a little uh, a little taste of what we would have talked about okay. had so, we like, been doing if, a show. If the show had been <laughs> – uh, in its normal spot. This is what everybody would have been able to enjoy. Yes. Okay. So we would have talked about in great detail what's going on with VidAngel and ClearPlay and Sony Pictures. And uh, I, I, I would have spoken with Rod Gustafson about it. In fact, we did record a little something for it. And that's not to say that we won't uh, air it later on. But are you guys familiar with anything that's going on with those three companies? Well, I know that uh, that VidAngel, uh, which I am a member of, mm-hmm. um, just recently said that – because they're still in, in litigation uh, over the way that they handle streaming the movies. But they, they announced basically a, a an end around where they were going to allow you to do the same thing but with Netflix and Amazon. Yes. And that's the last that I heard of it just a couple of days ago. I know I tried to log on and I couldn't even get – it wouldn't even allow me to log on. So yeah, when they made the announcement, their servers just totally crashed, and you know they're still trying to uh, get people hooked up with Amazon. I think you can get hooked up with Netflix, but anyway, um, one thing that I talked about with Rod is that I was actually one of the alpha testers for that program before they announced it. Really, and it was pretty awesome. And it doesn't bother me because we're going to cancel our cable bill. And so, you know, even with Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, even with all those memberships and on top of that paying a VidAngel membership, we're still only going to pay, what, half the price that we would so as a cable unplug, bill? Oh, yeah. As they say, as the kids like to say. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I'm curious to know now what's coming up on your show today. You already told us about next Friday, but what's yep. coming up today? We've got a great show today. Uh, the Sporting News put out an article. Uh, and what they did was they looked at 16 teams in college football that they viewed as college football playoff teams. And then they looked at their schedules and said, this could be a trap game for this team. One of BYU's opponents is part of this. Hmm. We will let you know who they said was that team's trap game. And if we're bringing it up, it's probably, it's probably BYU. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I told you what's coming on our show next week, exactly what we would be talking about. Mm-hmm. And you, you, can't, you can't tell me right now who, who it is? It's called a tease. It's called a tease, <sighs> which I just told you the I learned answer. That, I learned that three and a half years ago. But see, here's what we're going to do with it. We're going to turn it around and ask BYU Sports Nation, what is BYU's trap game this year on their schedule? Boom. Mm. That's how that's, it's done. That's what we're doing on the show today. Plus, we have a great guest lineup. Man, that sounds like a great show. And a great show next Friday as well. Indeed. Well, uh, you're welcome, by the way. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Well, Jason and Brian, have a wonderful Father's Day weekend and enjoy the time with your family. And have a great show today. Thanks. Appreciate it. You too. All right. Well, um, we are actually going to talk a little bit more about VidAngel 
And again, that's not to say we won't talk about it in more detail later on on a different show, but this is actually going to be our panning for good segment for the day. There's good in them dire hills. All right. Now, this is a very controversial topic. Should should or should you not uh, take things out of movies and TV shows that uh, would upset the artists and filmmakers that created them uh, in order to present your family with watered-down entertainment. And again, I know it's very controversial, and I know a lot of people have varying opinions on this. But again, any I, in my opinion, if you are taking something and presenting it to your family and it's something that brings you together that you can enjoy, but maybe there's this one scene that if it wasn't there— you could all enjoy it together. To me, that is a good thing. And people people aren't trying to take these hard R kind of movies or NC-17 trash and sit it in front of their families. They're taking movies that without just a couple of scenes are really good. My, my old roommate... Um, loved the movie Boyhood a few years ago, but oh, there, yeah. there are just a couple too many cuss words and just one other scene that he wasn't comfortable sharing with other people around the campus or with his family. Yeah. And so before he there was even a TV edit, he went in with just Mac editing software and on his own copy of Boyhood made really? his own edit because he was so passionate about it. Um, and wow. he wanted to share that joy that he felt from that movie with people that wouldn't normally watch it because of just a few things. You didn't give his name, did you? No, sir. Okay, because I think that's illegal. It might be. <gasps> and in fact, you know, VidAngel as uh, so we don't Jason support it. <laughs> yeah, as Jason mentioned, VidAngel is uh, is in court battling this very topic right now. Um, but now they've released this new way of of showing these films through streaming. And uh, we'll see how it does, and we'll see if if there if there's going to be any more pushback from the studios. Um, we did mention that 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 Sony is at least trying to put forward some edited films, but they're also backtracking immediately. But again, you brought up a really good point too, though. I mean, I there are some films that you probably ought not filter because the subject matter. Or, you know, the amount of swear words or scenes that they would cut it out would neuter would the make whole it like movie. a 30-minute movie, right? So guys like Judd Apatow and, and Seth Rogen, the, the right. people that are – and Adam McKay that are giving the pushback at Sony saying we don't want you to, to entirely destroy our filmatic creations are not exactly the movies that the people that are for clear play want to even bother seeing. Right. Clear. Right. So we encourage you to go out there and try ClearPlay or VidAngel for a month because the first month is free. Yep. Uh, I mean, as long as you have the Amazon and Netflix uh, <laughs> memberships. But give it a try. Again, we, we like to shine a spotlight on companies and people and events that that promote family and promote good, clean entertainment. And that's certainly true of VidAngel and ClearPlay. So be sure to check them out. As we said, we will not be back next Friday because we've graciously given donated our hour next Friday to BYU Sports Nation. But it sounds like they've got a great show. So be, sh- be sure to tune in anyway. We'll be back here in a couple of weeks for Screen Cleaning, another edition of Screen Cleaning, Episode 8. Hopefully it can top Episode 7. I don't know. Anyway, have a great Father's Day weekend, and we'll talk again soon. 